This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. We're live. Hi, hi, Nubians. Hello, hey, wherever you are. I'm saying good morning because it's morning here. Yeah. How are Thank you, you, Professor Hunter, for this lovely. Oh, that's, that's all Uraeus, who is on the mend. He's feeling a lot better. Thank that's you, Uraeus. Normal. And I the got renewed all my... normal. Got oh, yeah, my... you got the yeah, the Octavia John. John on. Yes. It's... See, it's I'm not... indoors with the natural insulation. So I even had to put the air conditioning on because I would wear a hoodie 365 days a year. But if I went outside in 100 degree weather with this, although the, the, <laughs> our students always kid me because when we're in Kemet, I wear jeans and I'm like, that a car aren't you hot? I'm like, no. Well, I've been wearing the hoodies outside in 100 degree weather. Um, thinking I'm getting my sweat on, you know, I'm trying to melt this fat. So is this not whatever? First of all, no, we're not even going there because I saw, look, I saw them clips from Caroline, so we can just like retire all that. But I'm just saying, uh, is it a tourist thing? We just like being hot. <laughs> I like, I like, I, maybe it's the, the like the hug, the warmth, you know, that's what it is. Warm people, yes. So I, I mean, think it's got this blend down. Yes. I'm like, oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. I feel I better. Yeah. I love hoodies too. Uh, hey, how was your week? It was great, you know. Oh, before, uh, so the lotto thing, uh, third and do, do you play the metro? The metal, I don't even know what it's called. Mega, mega ball. Did I you probably play? should. I have friends who do, but you know, ever since I heard Scott Galloway at NYU, same guy wrote post corona talking about you know how rich people get rich. And every, every time, ever, ever since I heard him talk about healthcare, as he, he says, I have enough money now with my family and what I do that I got off the NYU healthcare plan so I can pay for my healthcare when, when it happens. He says, because insurance is poor people giving rich people their money out of fear and rich people get rich. And then if you never use the insurance, even if you do, they still made more money off it. And I look at Lotto like, what can I buy for $5? And I, I, I get the risk. I get the reward and I probably should. Do you, do you play? No, I, I don't. I do not, and I have not, and I'm not even tempted because, again, the history of it, I, I went all the way back Ooh. to 3rd century B.C. China, which is the first lotto um, recorded, you know, and they used pieces of wood, but it didn't go all the way back to Kemet, which I thought was interesting. So the, the, mm. the Africans didn't have a lot because the lottery was about the government. So that's how they built the Great Wall of China. You know, you get the poor people to get the, to have the lotto dreams and you give them, get their money and then you build stuff. So it's more for the government, you know, because half that money is going to go to taxes. Right. So you win one point one billion. You may take home 60 percent of that. The 40 percent goes to y'all's uncle. And, you know, it has been time. And, and then so the great Roman Empire, which was, uh, you know, the, the birth of debauchery and, you know, the mm. advantage of people, gladiators and, you know, all of that sl enslavement. And, you know, it's the, it's the, the, the father of America, first <laughs> Roman empire. So I'm like, and, and that's not why I don't play. I don't play. Cause I'm like, I don't want my finances to be hinged on something that, you know, some numbers. And when do you hit actually, you know, like, my father had a system because he's a numbers guy. So he had this, this, these books and he, I mean, so he would have like the regular lotto, he would hit quite frequently because it's numbers and 
algorithms and he didn't use a computer. He was like real fastidious with the numbers. I don't have the energy, time, or the acumen. Use this that. computer, the original. Yeah, but this mega thing is like you know it's wild. Um, I don't know if any, any of y'all Nubians win because you already know. You know, did y'all win? Find out, right? That's when we come. Library. It's a gang, gang. No, well, see, that's the enticement, isn't it? I mean, we, we, you know, we have a a a building fund with the Association for Study of Classical African Civilizations, and you know, we've been raising money for years. We won't get a a place, and we had that conversation. We said we should play this lottery because if we hit, then we move forward. And it's like. How much would you do in your life differently if you had material resources and what things wouldn't change? And, you know, think it's interesting you you take that back to our governance systems, our governance formations, um, because there's a contrast there, as, as we can imagine. When we look at the pyramids, you know, the whole faith-based narrative that slaves built uh, the pyramids, well, that's not true. And, you know, shout out to Ben Carson and whoever else is out there had their minds spun around in space by this social structure. But when you look at those those great works, um, what you basically seeing is a people who are relying on the now, the flooding of the now. And they divided, as we know, as Dr. Beatty has talked about many times, among many, many others, they divided the year into three sections of four months each. And there was a flood section where you flooded, they they planted, then there's harvest, you know, you come through that next four. And then you have four months of the year where you really, the farmers really can't do anything. And it was an agrarian society. It was stitched together over the range of the, the Nile by the relationships people had with each other. So what do you do? Well, you bring them to the great works and you put them to work. So the state employed them to build during the time they couldn't farm. So it works together. I and mean, so you wouldn't need a lottery as such. Of course, what holds the whole thing together is a way of knowing in which every human is valued based on how they view the world and how you've put that together in a federation. It's actually quite brilliant. But the concept of a lottery is very different when you have enough resources so that everybody can eat. I mean, you still don't have inequalities. There's no perfect society. But then contrast that with here, where we come in as property you know we were having this conversation this week with uh with our freedom school students in philly they're reading this uh can quality education be a constitutional right can you put it in the federal constitution and what would it mean and we just neared chapter four bob moses's chapter constitutional people versus constitutional property where bob moses is walking us through what happens when you come into a society where you never were human you are literally property coming through and of course we know finally that denmark Vesey won his freedom in Charleston, South Carolina, in a lottery. I'm just saying, so what happens when you can buy yourself because there's a price on you because you weren't human to begin with? The lottery gets real complicated when we find out. So people playing a lottery, it's no diss on you. Because after all, we are in a society where property is more valuable than humanity. <laughs> so what do you do? Do you not play? <laughs> because you're literally trying to buy back your time, your humanity in a capitalist society. It's crazy. Let's let's say I, I talked with Professor Wolf this week. I Not saw really. that. Richard yeah, Wolf is so fascinating. I didn't know him. So now I need to we need to have him back because I, you know, I'm learning in real time. And I didn't know the depth, but you know, yeah, but I hit him with a couple beast. of yeah, but I hit him with a couple of things that made him like, oh, you know, well, that's the thing. They beast, but they don't really deal with what we yeah. talk about. That governance thing yeah. flips, and then they'd be like, 
Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I hit him, hit him on the chin a couple with the, you know, and oh. he was, you know, I said, I come from abundance. Hmm. So, you know, he's talking about, you know, capitalism and whether it should go away. I, he thinks it, does, it should go away and that we're in these cycles where, you know, there's a scapegoat and then, you know, horrible things happen. And as a person, you know, from the Jewish faith, you know, or culture, he, mm -hmm. you know, he's going to take this real seriously because throughout time, you know, the scapegoat is right there. Uh, and so, you know, I was thinking, though, I was like, what did the Egyptians do? What did the before the Egyptians? Mansa Musa. So I brought up Mali. And uh, and he was like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, we having a different conversation. I was like, yeah, we're going to have a different conversation today. And Ooh, I just, his face. I was just yeah, it was it was fun. It was fun, but I'm like, there's more I can get from this man because he he's a, a oh without a doubt a economist. Without a but doubt. what does an economy mean to a people who come from abundance, who know they come from abundance? I love watching what's happening in Nubia every day because there is like, we're, who's in this area? Let's get together. There's a sense of cooperative economics. We you know we have. Uh, these, these Thursday conversations, which have turned into therapy sessions, which is beautiful because we don't talk about money primarily because we were money, you know, and there's a, there's a, a depth of understanding in our DNA of that. And there's also a resistance of like, this doesn't feel right. Mm. You know, we were commodities, we were on auction blocks to play the stock market with where they used to trade our black bodies feels yes doesn't feel good, you know, but that's where the majority of the wealth is made in this country. And do you participate in a system that literally decimated your, your entire community? Your, well, the your, trick is you're already in it. Yes. So do you get it? Do you join them? Do you beat them by joining? You know, so there's a lot. No, of you don't beat them by joining them. That's, that's right. impossible. But I mean, what do you do is what you, you right. I mean, we're talking about value. Money is a proxy for value. And I was looking around as an excellent book came out during the pandemic. It's called uh, Blood and Money. Mm -hmm. which talks about, among other things, the fact that the foundation of the modern world system is based on anti-human behavior. And of course, you know, Wolf is is, is 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 hell on this question of capitalism. I was reading Mike Davis, who is, uh, you know, moving toward transition. He has stage four cancer and uh, wrote the book City of Quartz. He's done a lot of different kind of work um, around Los Angeles, which is his home and and using it as a proxy for not just the, the rest of the country, but the world system we live in. And he's written a lot more than that. But and he says, you know, this is unsalvageable. Los Angeles can't be uh, reformed. It's doing what it's meant to do. You have the rich, those who have power and you have the powerless and the system works to do that. So um, uh, how do you free yourself from that system? Do you do it by trying to engage in shelter in place? Uh, well, I suppose metaphorically that could be interpreted as the uh, metaphorical equivalent of duck and cover. You remember duck and cover? I, I think we're just old enough to remember, remember when they would have the uh, the drills and you had to hide in your desk. That my my mother talked about it. My dad talked about. Did she? It. <laughs> Did they? Yeah, which is interesting because they were. It was a fear of nuclear. Yeah. Nuclear holocaust. And Scott they, didn't do that. I didn't I didn't have that. I don't think we went under the desks. We yeah. would go into the hallway. There was either tornado drill, but it, it had remnants of the nuclear. Oh. So what was plywood going to do against the nuclear bomb? <laughs> no, but I mean, but in terms but but I mean, in terms of us thinking somehow we can beat this system, 
is it closer to the equivalent of duck and cover do you shelter in place do you save your money and, and in a minute you you evoke something and and i love how you kind of feel the pulse of the rhythms of how we've moved through the world and identify these representative moments and say let's toss this in on saturday and see what we think about because you mentioned congressman adam clayton powell and uh in a minute we can take a peek into one of powell's sermons on this very subject but this is the question this is the question i mean i'll i'll leave it to you to kind of frame it but what do we do what do we do in a society where and again we've been we've been and in fact i of course we were uh tweeting each other and to the larger in that other space that we are slowly uh moving away from twitter about this or engaging differently now that we have the whole newbie of social media platform as well but the fact that the stock market has just continued to rise in fact today's financial times weekend global equities stage a comeback tech groups lead july rally global stocks have rebounded from a dreadful first half of 2022 as easing rate rise expectations and, and upbeat earnings this month from big tech groups fueled a broad rally and you know the last two quarters golf made so much money that they have engaged in a in, in a in a stock buyback of billions six billion i think was the number from yesterday's financial times and pause for a second so people are you know those who are not in the stock a stock buyback you know that's part of the conversation we had yeah, walk us through that thank you thank you so, yeah. um when you think about because i've been saying this forever and even before because there's always been these gas spikes sometimes they're man-made sometimes it's you know what is a recession hmm. so you know golf all of them could tomorrow drop gas to an, to 99 cents. They could do it $1.99. They could. And that would force the market, right? That would force everybody else because yeah. the gas station owners don't make their money off of the gas. They make their money off of the 7-Eleven or the, the convenience store that's there. Anybody that owns a gas station, their money's not made off of the sale of the gas. They're, that goes all to the oil companies, right? That, that profit. And My now you've got... St- st- shareholders like we need more profits we need more we need more so lowering the price doesn't give doesn't give the buyback opportunities doesn't give the shareholders more right so they're beholden to the shareholders not to the people that buy the gas that's right i was thinking yesterday because it was an anniversary this week of the naacp's march down broad uh was it fifth Uh, avenue the the famous silent march yeah yes Mm -hmm. was it 1918 I think it was 1918 or 1917. Yeah, maybe 17, because I think it was before the war. We should look it up. Because right, one thing wars do is try to mute internal dissent. Which, uh, anyway, but let me not go down that that trail. But yes, the silent march, the famous silent march. Yes, a man was lynched today. <laughs> yeah, 1917, silent march. This with drumbeats, and I was thinking, what would happen if we boycotted the gas like we did the buses? Like, you know, it's like at some point, and this is what Wolf was saying, we have to get to cooperative economics. He didn't use those terms, but. Maybe there has to be a week. I mean, the Montgomery bus boycott, and it's so interesting. Um, what was the circumstance that led Roland to go down this trail the other night? We were talking about this question of boycott, and it came to he evoked the example of operation breadbasket of course which was people we we might not remember all of us was really in many ways an economic 
wing of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And of course, after Dr. King was assassinated, Jesse kind of took that in its own direction and becomes the foundation of, among other things, People United to Save Humanity, which then became People United to Serve Humanity, which goes on, Operation Push. But Breadbasket was an attempt to seize upon that momentum of the 50s and 60s. In fact, we could go back again, evoking Adam Clayton Powell, evoking Adam Clayton Powell's father, Adam Clayton Powell Sr., the Don't Buy Where You Can't Work campaign in the 1940s and 50s in places like Harlem, you know, where they, you couldn't get a job in there. Why in the hell are you going there buying clothes or buying food? But Breadbasket had boycott as in a step program that evoked, I think it was 12 or 13. I had a book over here somewhere, but I won't pause to try to look for it. I think I moved some stuff around. I don't, I'm not sure where it is, but excellent book on Operation Breadbasket. But the point that Roland was making and the point we were discussing is boycott is way down the list it's like number eight or nine the whole idea is are these businesses who you are threatening with boycott are oh you know what it was it was those children those black children what was that disney disney place oh, where the animal place that's yeah sesame place right because billy martin who very famous lawyer of course in baltimore the families are now mounting a class action suit and of course they're owned by sea world so they said, we're going to boycott. I'm thinking, you're going to boycott Bush Gardens this summer? You're going to boycott SeaWorld? You're going to boycott Sesame Place? And, and Ron's like, well, boycott is way down the list. The question is, how many black people work there? What are the wages? You know, are you advertising with black families? Are you giving scholarships to black children? And Breadbasket had all these other things. And now, if you don't do all this, we go with boycott. Remember Dr. King talking about SEAL tests and all that just before he made transition. He's at the Operation, I'm sorry, Operation Bush. He's at the Breadbasket meeting, actually the SELC meeting. And they're in Cleveland negotiating. He says, but the failure of that type of strategy is, again, continuity. In other words, once you get these concessions, because remember, what are we now? Two years past the so-called summer of outrage. And those people pledged this amount of money to corporations. They, they, a lot of people got a check. Adam Clayton Powell talks about that too. And in the, in the wake of it is two years later, where are the monitoring? Guess what? Um, I was just talking with some business folk and that George Floyd guilt money, which I knew. I said, you got you got this much of a window. Come on now. Through, I've been saying that it is closing. They no longer feel compelled to sponsor, to, you know, and because I sit in a space where advertising is important, yes. I, I got my finger on the pulse of it. I was like, I knew the window was going to close. And if you didn't build uh, mechanisms and systems to hold people accountable. Right. And that's when you boycott. No, well, you pull the trigger on the boycott after the stuff you won didn't go in play. But they don't even remember the stuff. And that, that ain't even, that's not decades ago. That's a matter of a couple of, it's like 24 Two months. Years. Two years in a month. <laughs> you know? And so you were talking about, so what was the response when you raised that? I mean, you know, yes, yes. If we, if we all, you know, put pressure on these gas companies who have poisoned the water, uh, you know, oil spills and done all kind of nefarious things. And at the same time, are gouging, price gouging because they can. Oh, it's a recession. Let's raise the gas price. It's arbitrary. It's not, they're not raising the gas prices because they can't get oil. They're not raising the gas prices because there's a shortage and a supply chain issue with them getting us gas. They're right. doing it because they can. Right. And they're doing it because it's profitable for their shareholders and it makes them, you know, more and more money. As you just mentioned, they, they had record heights of, of returns during the pandemic and now. That's right. 
they could lower the price at any time and that would force everybody to lower the price but yeah. they don't they choose not to yeah and and unfortunately as you say we well, let me let me not say it. well it is unfortunate i mean so we are involved in the business of trying to make it through the day the vast majority of people in the world and as many people by the thousands weekly who convene here with us you know there for every one of us which is in the thousands now the tens of thousands and and continuing to grow there are many 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 more who don't have access who don't who are just trying to get through the day and we can i just i'm sorry doctor no. you know beyonce dropped an album my timeline was full of Beyonce. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, of course, yeah. It even reached yeah. my ears, which you know takes some doing. But yeah. then I was with the young people, so of course it can't. Yeah, no question. Not just young people. I'm saying you, you, you put your attention on it. I think of the people that boycotted, that didn't, that were making ten cents a day, that walked to work and they couldn't really afford to boycott. They had to get to work. Shoes worn out. There's a lack of sacrifice, and there's a lack of one. You know, there was a because I'm in this money thing now. You know, what millennials, what Gen Z, what they expect to make a salary to make them happy. Baby boomers was something like 70,000. Um, I'm just going off the top of my head. And I think the no, next generation. I mean, 70,000 would have, uh, I think my mother and father would have re weeped real tears if they had seen Same. that at any point. <laughs> but they go all the way to Gen, whatever this is, Z, X, whatever. And it was like 190,000 would make them happy in the salary. And I was like, you know, the expectation of comfort and security and all, you know, it's like there's a sense of entitlement. So while you say, Dr. Carr, people are trying to get day to day, go through their day, I'll say, okay, except that y'all find time to do things. People find time to do things oh, that have no value. I got you. Well, a lot it, of it, a lot of time, yeah, including I, being on social media. I'm reading a book now about you know uh, Baratunde Thurston, who took 25 days off of social media and wrote an article about it and how his life was transformed. And it's like now it, this is the same Baratunde Thurston who, along with Tanasi Coates and a bunch of other young people, were taken through the rites of passage at Nation House here in D.C. See, the problem with it is, I, I see when you know too much, you, so you talking to the social structure. Yes. Because guess what? We, Baba IJ and them, come on, bartender. Social structure. Yeah, because Baba IJ and Baba Jules and all them people who have Nation House, which continues one of the oldest African-centered education formations in the United States of America. You didn't just learn that from getting off social media. But I understand you got to dance. You got to dance. Because see, when you dance, sometimes people throw coins at you. So uh, I understand. But anyway, well, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, but that to your point, right? You know, so even that is like, look over here, look over here, look over here, look over here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, okay, could we focus for like 30 days and or can we focus for like 10 days and like figure out a game plan, but not figure out a game plan. Let's do what they did. Let's do what, I mean, let's the renewed what, normal. Yeah. We're talking about a new normal. We're talking about a renewed normal, but there's no money in renewed. The money <laughs> is in the new. I did this. Look what I found. Look what I paid me. Yeah. Well, actually, there is money in the renewed, but it just it takes longer to get it. So, there's like, value. Know, there's value whatever, in right? There's that's and that to me is currency because oh, that is the only currency. You're investing in the future of who we are for the rest of eternity, and I think that's worth it, personally. But no, no, no. We, we and we have to think collectively. I mean, and I apologize. You're right. I mean, between the brain <laughs> takes us all the way back to uh, 
Shabaka, Pianki, and Taharka in that 25th, so-called 25th dynasty in Kemet. We were actually talking about that a couple of weeks ago with this summer school class we just finished at Howard with our with our freshman STEM students and student athletes. Um, when Taharka, Shabaka, and Pianki came up the Nile to restore order after the latest wave of invasions, 25th dynasty, around 750, I guess that was, uh, so-called BC. Uh, so that would be what uh close to three thousand years ago and they as the story goes the so-called shabaka stone which the thieves have in the british museum shout out to the uh, thieves who never did anything great that they didn't derive from someone else so if you want to see this piece of african writing you got to go to the british museum as we have to see it but uh the order from shabaka was to restore this much older text from thousands of years prior to that to a form a written form of relative permanence so they wrote it on granite and so in the metanature on this stone which tells this history uh this 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 um this way of knowing we want to use our africana studies framework so ways of knowing what ways have african people perceived reality communicate that perception to each other in the world ways of knowing so we don't say philosophy we don't say religion take away those labels those you know just think about ways of knowing how do we know we know take away the word epistemology you know ways of knowing we want a broad concept so these africans who we would call nubians being up farther up the nile and what is now the sudan i suppose you could say as they come down the nile and i'm going this way because the nile runs this way so around now runs south to north you no know, to run if it's 3d you see the plateau is coming down into the mediterranean so as they get there and restoring order they reach a place uh Minnefer, um the white wall what we would now call memphis not in tennessee although john morant and them doing a pretty good job there by the mississippi river but the original memphis Minnefer, uh the white wall uh Pitah, the place of Pitah in kemet which we will see our mouths to god ears about a year from now because this we be just getting ready to get on the planes we go the first two week of august every year and so Shabaka, Pianki, Taharka, these uh, these father-son, grandson, as they're coming down, restoring order, they get to the, the White Wall, what they call the White Wall, Memphis, which is an administrative capital of the ancient period. And Shabaka is like, you know, um, what is it? What is the way of knowing that holds us together, holds this society together? And it has come down through time, the social structure, Egyptologists, which is kind of redundant because if you call yourself an Egyptologist, you probably have been trained by or oriented in the social structure, even to call yourself an ologist. But we'll deal with disciplines another day, maybe over in the office. <laughs> we talk about that. But the the idea is that you they said, what do we know? What do we know to be the order of the world? And so I went through all that story to say as they write the so-called Shabaka text, if you want to see an excellent translation. And Mario Betty has translated so much of this stuff and he's got it on note cards like this. You know, I'm like, bruh, it's time to, you know, that'll be one of the things, one of the many projects we have in narrative, you know, get these publications out. But at any rate, Jacob Carruthers has an excellent translation that has been published at a Karnak house. Our brother Saba, Aman Saba Sakana out of Trinidad and Tobago, who, like so many other daughters and sons of the Caribbean, spent decades in Great Britain. And he has a publishing house, Karnak House. And so Jacob Carruthers' book, Medu Nature, which he talks about this way, these various ways of knowing, bringing it all up to the current period from classical time to now, he does his own line by line translation because, you know, Carruthers could do that coming out of that Kemetic Institute formation. And so he translates what is called in, this, in the social structure, the so-called Memphite theology. Again, theology, another word borrowed from these Western disciplines. 
the Memphite theology. In other words, this is the theology of the Egyptians as written down by Shabaka and it's written on the Shabaka stone. He, this is the other thing, you don't see African people writing their names on things like that. In other words, you see a piece of art, well, who did it? Uh, the collective genius of the people coming through one particular person who's representative of that collective genius. We're not signing art. So they call it the Shabaka stone because the West likes to label stuff. And it, and it go. I went through all that to say that he narrates how, or this document narrates how the people of Kemet thought about one of the ways they thought about creation and the process of creation. So it's central to the comedic worldview, of course, the comedic way of knowing, a comedic way of knowing is speech. When we think speech, we think the mouth. Speech is also writing. Speech is any way of communicating. So what the, 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 the so-called Shabaka stone, so-called Memphite theology is, says that you know everything came out of speech speech is the central organizing principle of reality but what precedes speech is internal speech meaning what thought thought is internal speech so and we talked we talked about this you know and at this point we're now what 125 this, this is like maybe a year and a half ago we devoted a whole session to this concept of this way of knowing which says that when you're thinking you are replicating the process through which existence happened. So when the creative force says, you know, I exist because I always existed. And when I happen, happening itself happens. It's actually quite beautiful when you see the, the prose and translation. And more and more of us now, because of narrative and that weekly class that the baby is teaching, um, can do to our own translations. We're getting to the point now people translate for themselves. Again, yeah, you see, you niggas going to put all of these pay all this tuition people out and the ugly secret in academic Egyptology is most Egyptologists can't read or write metanature but anyway that's the story for another day they doing archaeology they doing material stuff but they, now translate this well that's not my specialty you can't read anyway <laughs> but we got an army of people now growing who and just and I love it regular people because that's what we are we people so the even the constant now, of course, now again, our, our our theologians, to use a label from the social structure, are deep thinkers who engage in the kind of spiritual practice of bringing community. The Jeremiah Wrights, the Freddie Haynes, the so many others who are in this space and beyond, will walk us through this and take it back to now the derivative of some of these Africana ways of knowing that we find in the Christian Bible and the Old Testament, Genesis, because that narrative survives from Kemet. And then finds its way into the children of Kemet, which are the Abrahamic faith traditions, Judaism, then Christianity, then Islam. Not the same as Kemet, but absolutely grounded out of Kemetic ways of knowing. You want to footnote that? Um, Yan Asman, God versus the gods. Yan Asman, A-S-S-M-A-N-N, -N, German Egyptologist. I'm looking back over there because around the corner, I got all his books in one place. Um, who talks about this, but he isn't the only one. I mean, this is well known. So when you see the, the Torah, the first five books of the, what become the Christian Bible, you're basically looking at the, uh, and I guess it's God versus the gods as Osman deals with this. No, there's another one. It'll, it'll come to me in a minute. At any rate, the whole idea, in fact, it is Osman who writes about first order and second order religions. This is a first order religion, or I, I would expand it to say a first order way of knowing is one that comes out of the culture of the people who created it. In other words, it's created out of the indigenous experiences of people. A second order, what Asma would call religion, and I would say way of knowing, 
is derived from that first order way of knowing by people who did not create that original way of knowing, who then absorb elements of that way of knowing, add their own and go on. So most things in the world now are derivative, but the first order way of knowing is still there. And what Osman says, argues, is that in many of the traditions that we see in the world, because proprietary interests are often at the center of creating new ways of knowing out of the old ones, some of these narratives then narrate themselves in the second order way of knowing. They narrate themselves as original, but in order to do that, they must break with the first order ways of knowing. And to do that, they create in their narratives a moment of complete departure where they say, we broke from those people who came before us because they were not, in the case of religion, worshipers of the true God. And then we created our own because God spoke to us directly. You say, okay, that's beautiful. And what you, what have you accomplished then? Asma would say, well, this is what you've accomplished. Now everybody looking at you as the original and you just keep borrowing, except they don't remember what happened before, except the way you narrated it. Don't get scared. Go back to the Old Testament. Genesis, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Exodus. Exodus is the rejection of the first way of knowing. And then you absorb all that stuff you learned and you turn it into 10 commandments. But if people say, wait, let me look past you to what you learned. Where'd you get that from? Oh, there were 42. Yeah, no, no, because y'all came out here with that golden calf. We smashed that. I broke the tablets. I went back and God told me 10 commandments. The first, you shall have no gods before me or other than me. Wait, there are other gods? Shh, shut up. Number two. That's in other words. So what Osman is saying, you took all that stuff from the Egyptians and you narrated that. Go back to Genesis. In the beginning is dark. It's water. Darkness covered the face of the earth. And then there was light. God spoke and started creating. The Egyptians are like, you must have read the Memphite theology. In fact, we know you read the Memphite theology. In fact, Moses, Mesu, meaning to be born in the Egyptian. Did, weren't you raised by the Egyptians here? So you went up there and came back with what you learned from Egypt, but you said God spoke to you directly and the people bought it. And here we are thousands of years later. But Genesis is a reiteration, an improvisation on the Memphite theology. Because remember, let there be light is spoken, but who spoke it? Somebody who thought it. Who was that? That's the creator in the Abrahamic traditions, whether it be Judaism, then Christianity, then Islam. But Thought preceded speech because thought itself is speech. And so every time we talk, we speak. Every time we procreate is a speech. Everything is creation comes out of something that was already there to begin with. We're just dealing with different variations of combinations and recombinations, or as Octavia Butler might say, change. Change is the constant. Think about that. So I apologize, Professor Hunter, because what I was thinking of that didn't make it through the thinking of the mind comes down through the tongue, through the limbs. This is the Memphite theology as Jacob Carruthers translates it in Meta Nature. My thinking didn't come out of my mouth in a way to communicate. And this would change communication theory, by the way, if we, particularly at black colleges, if we had the courage to go back and look at those people who taught at black colleges for decades and wrote all this stuff down because what i'm saying ain't even new it's renewed you just look at those hbcu curriculums from the 30s 40s 50s and 60s and i had one of the best jamie coleman williams who knew all of this and you see it in the books but at any rate the what i was thinking when i said those people who are just struggling to survive i wasn't thinking exclusively about those who were in the quote-unquote advanced or capitalist societies I'm thinking about, for example, we got about 40,000 children right now 
who are caught in a colonial exercise of scavenging for resources. And I'm talking about in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where you got these children basically engaged in slave labor. Slave labor for cobalt, slave labor for copper, slave labor for coltan by these Western corporations that make it possible for us to be able to have this conversation on these devices because those minerals are what power our laptops, our cell phones, and all that. And you got about 40. And those children who may or may not know about what Beyonce is or isn't doing or whether Chris Rocks uh, will accept Will Smith's apology, they trying to figure out relative to where they are right now, which is working to exhaustion. They're trying to figure out, you know, what I mean? and so that was in my mind and I didn't put it out of my mouth. You know what I'm saying? And I should have because we typically think about it here. No, thank thank you. But that it was on me. And I'm sorry I went through all the myth point. It is my point that every day we don't, you know, consider the things that actually matter. You know, we on purpose it's that gladiator thing. You know, look over here, look over here. That's look right. at this fight. Look at this fight. Oh, they're fighting this fight, 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 fight. That's all Twitter is, right? Fight, fight, fight. That's right. When there are real things happening in the world that we could have an impact on the oh, way we have impact yeah. on, you know, ending apartheid and all of the other things that we put through our weight behind and, and boycotted companies that were invested in in the in that criminal enterprise called apartheid, which we started here in America first. Mm. Anyway, uh, no, no, and shout out to the Chinese who don't, who think we ain't paying attention. We got to have our brother Howard French back who wrote a whole book on this. Them cats is straight cologne. Man, you took. As John Henry Clark used to say, riffing off Steve Biko, we ain't got no friends. <laughs> but the weed to what you raised earlier, the reason they could sustain a boycott of Montgomery for a year is because there were strong institutions. There was the black church, of course. But there were also the black teachers unions and teachers associations. Shout out to Joanne Robinson, black women's political counselor in Montgomery. She's on the faculty at Alabama State and all those teachers. That's where the mimeograph forms came from, those teachers. You know what I'm saying? And um, uh, shout out to the taxi drivers. Yeah, black taxi drivers. You know, even when Montgomery tried to put them out of business, they said, shout out to the black banks. As people sent money to Montgomery, they put it in black banks, not just in Montgomery. They were putting those checks in banks in New Orleans, in Nashville. In, in, they were, in other words, Citizens Bank in Nashville. You know, uh, the, the, uh, my man out of Savannah who started the bank, then became the president of Savannah State University. Richard Robert Wright Sr. I mean, so the bus boycott, what we get in the social structure is what's useful to this country. Look how great we are. Yes, they fought and then we changed the laws. Go to hell. The governance question, the governance story to Montgomery bus boycott is really the story of black institutions. But of course, with the end of apartheid, as we know, that begins to eat at that because what then gets substituted is you have capitalism begin to work its magic on a class of black people who once that hedge has been removed of segregation can now say, well, I'll still love my community, but now I can get a job over here. Now I can go to this school and fast forward to where we are now. And the center of black work for a certain class of people becomes diversity, equity, and inclusion. <laughs> they were not fighting for diversity, equity, and inclusion in Montgomery bus boycott. They were fighting for social justice. And, and, and that's why now, if you don't mind, Professor Hunter, because no, absolutely, and I just uh, one more thing, because you took us through the knot. I didn't know where we were going, and then we got there. <laughs> uh, Eric Williams in the chat um, talked hmm. about seven principles of my art. Oh, and yeah. I was walking in my neighborhood, my new neighborhood, and somebody 
had a sign outside there, like in, in, in etched in like metal, House of Ma'at. And I said, somebody in here is very black or something, right? You wouldn't put that sign up if you if you are not rooted in that, would you? I don't know. I don't know. What does that mean? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we talk about value. Our value has never been questioned. The question is, in a in a system where currency is a proxy for value, how is that value? How does that value emerge in this social structure? So you can deprive black people of currency, money, you know, in that respect. But in terms of value, our value has never been diminished. So culturally, whether that be the music, whether that be our performance in athletic fields, what has been managed severely by this social structure is the translation of that value into things that benefit us. So if you can run and jump, then we value that as we always have, but we're going to translate that into a system where you will not derive currency from it. We will derive currency from it. Really? What does that mean? That means that in athletics, boys and girls, adult boys and girls, mostly boys, who can't run, can't jump, can't do anything, day after day after day, build a whole parasitic infrastructure where they sit like slave traders and broadcast, well, you know, I don't know if Kevin Durant's going to be traded because, you know, I mean, you know, the Nets don't have to trade him. I mean, after all, I mean, when you, when you see Russell Westbrook, what happened to Russell Westbrook? I mean, I mean the guy throwing him, now I call him Brick. I call him Brick because he Dude, you wouldn't you couldn't throw a you couldn't throw a damn beach ball into the ocean, but you have built a whole life of money and houses and wealth in the bank, all talking about the labor of other people. And so I'm saying that if you see a sign in the neighborhood that says House of My Eye, there was a time when you could just about bet that's the person of African descent. I think that time may have passed. So it could be. Or it could be somebody who is into it because like everything else, our value overflows our communities and influences everything. So whether it be braiding hair or trying to get that dance or most of the music is uh, is bought by white people. Now, my eye is hot. My mm. eye is hot. You know what I'm saying? People got onks on. I go in the store now or I go somewhere and say, oh, I love your onk. And I'm thinking this onk that I got from a master jeweler Babarafu from the house of Kemet, who before that had Pyramid Bookstore where Chad Bozeman worked on Georgia Avenue. Babarafu, who is part of the family that includes the jewels of a time there in New York, Queen of Fu and them. You don't know nothing about this ring right here with my eye on the side. You see the feather? Y'all can't really see that, but the feather of my eye, he crafted that. This is handcrafted. And I'm saying, oh, I love your aunt. That's, now, so. In my mind, my ways of knowing, I got all kind of answers, but I'm talking in the social structure. So what do I say? Thank you. <laughs> exactly. And keep it moving. But so that sign, you might say, you may go knock on that door and say, Oh, hello, enemy. Ah, oh, peace and blessings. You'd be like, Are you are you that lady that called the police? Put a noise with yes, but peace and blessings. Oh, because the peace and blessings of my art didn't overflowed years ago. But the translation of that into the hierarchy is how the social structure manages to uh, take from black people 
in the words of our brother and ancestor who we spent a whole time talking about him and his mom, Greg Tate, everything but the burden. So, I mean, you know, in fact, I've taken now that when I see a Black Lives Matter sign in a window, I just assume that's a settler. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like Smith, the the the, uh, the capitalist equivalent of smearing blood over your doorpost when the Passover came. Another yeah. moment in that second order tradition trying to reject the first order tradition because the God of the Hebrews is going to protect the children of Israel from the very ways of knowing they're going to import and create Judaism. But you got to have a break moment. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I won't get to, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, hey. It's, no, not, you know, it's, no, it's important what I'm realizing, and, and when I say we, I mean Nubians. When I say mm. we, I mean us. Mm. So I'm very clear in my mind of who we are. We are the people that are bringing bricks to build the world we want to live in. So I'm very clear about that. But as you're talking and as, you know, I see there's like this resistance and there's almost an anger sometimes when you challenge people's belief systems and not everyone's ready. Not everyone's ready mm -hmm. to process. For me, I hear that and I'm liberated. I'm liberated because everything that I've been taught uh, has been taught through a lens of to oppress me. At the same time, I absolutely believe in God. At the same time, I absolutely pray every day. But my prayer yeah. life has become so much more enriched because the creator that I pray to now supersedes all that uh, I learned in Sunday school. It is so much bigger. Mm. My creator is so much bigger. And my creator looks like me. How so about it makes that? it easier for me to manifest the things that I want to have happen in my life um, because I know where I come from. Now and I just want to say thank you, uh, because I was already on that path, but you cracked it. You, it was like the Rosetta Stone, which is also uh, so yeah, Rosetta Stone. Hey, you no know, question. You know uh, what's the equivalent of that? Well, the Rosetta Stone. I think that's a great metaphor. Okay, because you know, as Dr. Beatty would tell us, I mean, in so many other the the the, the Rosetta Stone is one of those late period documents from Kemet that allows us to renew our acquaintance with the language of that particular group of ancient Africans. Because on the Rosetta Stone, you have Greek, because it's from the Ptolemaic period. You have the uh, Greek writing. You've got the Heretic, I think it's Heretic, which is a script form of Metanecha. And then you have Middle Egyptian, which is what we are learning, what folks are learning in, in, in narrative in Nubia. What that means is, See, the, the element was at that period, and now we're talking about the so-called New Kingdom period. This is after Pianki, Shabak, and Taharka. Uh, this is during the period. In fact, this is how you can use the, we use the Rosetta Stone to translate. We know Martin Delaney was trying. This is in the 18, the 19th century. So, you know, 18 teens, 1820s, Champollion is given credit for it, although Norbert Rilieu may have been around in that conversation as well. Everybody trying to crack the Metanetra and these white boys trying to crack it because they stole all this stuff. Napoleon Banana took all this stuff back to France. His, his arena books is a, actually a fairly recent book called The Rosetta Stone that came out during the pandemic as well. It's just the latest in a, in a shelf of books on this. But at any rate, long story short, they understood the Greek because that was part of their intellectual genealogy. They couldn't crack the Middle Egyptian, but there was a name in Greek on the Rosetta Stone of a ruler from that late period. Because by then, as John Henry Clark, you say, Egypt was old and tired and it had been invaded many times. And so what you have, late period, we're talking now around the fourth century 
BC, the third century BC. And now we are in the sites of the invaders who form with their own versions of second order. They form the basis for this mess we in now. We're talking about now the Greeks and the Romans. The Romans coming after the Greeks, and of course, the Romans are second order. Why? Because if you look at their quote-unquote gods, it's like the quote-unquote Greek gods, many of them have Egyptian parents. This is why you read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you see at the beginning of the Iliad in the Trojan War, the Greek gods have gone to Ethiopia for a feast. Why? Because they know where they're from. <laughs> you understand? So, go back, you know, y'all had to read that stuff. I mean, some of y'all had to read that stuff in high school or, or before. But this is the period. Remember, there is a, a Greek a Ptolemy is the cluster of Greek pharaohs. Because remember Alexander of Macedon, who liked to call himself the Great, whatever, came to the to the oracle in Kemet, like, make me a pharaoh. And they're like, yeah, okay. Just like I say, thank you. <laughs> and now you won. Meanwhile, the Africans keeping what they know, how they know when we go to the Nile Valley, you're going to get to uh, late period stuff. And we all going to be standing there and you say, Damn, Dr. Betty, I thought I was ready for translations, but I couldn't really translate that. He said, I can't either. So what, why? Because these are scripts that many of the people of Kemet who knew the writers who knew Metanature did not give to the Greeks. Didn't give to the Greeks. So some of that stuff gibberish. Some of that stuff is combined because the Greeks are in there now. Teach us, teach us. And as Solon, you know, as it is, is reported in late period, these Africans looking at the Greeks like you Greeks are like children. You always want to know something immediately and you don't stay long enough to learn anything very deeply. This would be the period of Anaximander and Thales and a cat who we all heard of in geometry class. Yes, Pythagoras. In other words, ain't no pyramids in, in Greece. So, I mean, you want to you want to you, you know something, but then you don't stay long enough. This takes years and you still don't. The, the, the limits of knowledge are not reached going all the way back to the Middle Kingdom and Ptahotep. You know, so when people are calling people hoteps, I just shake my head because I'm like, you really, I mean, your full ignorance is on display. And that's not a condemnation. That means that is our point of departure. Now we must educate. So nobody should be shaken by this. It doesn't attack anyone's faith. It doesn't attack anyone's belief system. What, it re what you realize is you don't need that to, 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 to make it. So anyway, as I was going through that, the, the, on this Rosetta Stone, Greek, Metanature, they, they can read the Greek and there is a name. The name is one of the late period Greek rulers. Interestingly enough, a female. Not the first female pharaoh in Kemetic uh, society. That goes back to thousands of years before this. The name, of course, is the name of the seventh person to have this name as a title in, in, in the royal family. But this person was not an African. She was part of the Ptolemies. The Greeks had invaded. The Persians had been in there. So, uh, her name was Cleopatra. When people say, was Cleopatra back? The answer is, you can have Cleopatra. We don't need her. The question is, was Hatshepsut an African? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Was T an African? Yes. Was Cleopatra an African? Just keep her. Just the late period. <laughs> we don't. Everybody in here now. You know what I'm saying? So, they can read that. So what do they start doing? They match that name to the metanature where they understand if you see a chenou, what the French would call a cartouche, that is a proper name. And they then, huh, okay, that L, that K, Li, Wu, 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 P, T, T, that 
loaf. Ah, that's a T. Er, closed mouth. Er, ah, Egyptian for. Those glyphs mean Cleopatra. And then they begin to break the code because those are the first uniliterals, single consonant sounds or soft consonant sounds that begin to match. So everybody, remember that first lesson with Dr. Beatty where he's going through the, the uniliterals? Ah, I, I, U, U. In other words, these are the characters that represent these sounds. Once you get that, now you can start dealing with the biliterals. Then you can start doing simple translations. Then you can get the suffix pronouns. Then you can start doing the grammar. Then you can look at the, 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 the ones that don't have a sound sign but have a sense sign, what they would call uh, the, uh, the honor, well, not the honorifics. The, anyway, my point is that these, that's how they crack the metanature. So the Rosetta Stone metaphor you use is actually very powerful because what the Rosetta Stone is and what it symbolizes is something that comes late enough so that let me get the dog outside something that comes late enough to be a bridge between where the world is now and where it was long before and we needed the Rosetta Stone to get back to where we were once we get to back where we were renewed normal we can then bring our knowledge forth and in the words of Jacob Carruthers very famously, at the beginning of his book, Metanature, African champions must break the chain that link African ideas to European ideas and speak to our ancestors without interpreters. That doesn't mean we don't study other things. It means we study the world, but you study it from a position of strength. The Montgomery bus boycott worked because they attacked the Montgomery bus system and the city and the courts from a position of strength. They weren't out there with picket signs every day saying, let us on the bus, let us on the bus. They stayed off the bus and their internal structures, their governance structures sustained them until bus companies like, we losing money. Look, man, and the people, other people like, you making the country look bad. So then they come in, shout out to Fred Gray again. These are, and you know, black lawyers. In other words, you, you attack systems from positions of strength. It's not a diversity, equity, and inclusion argument. Let us in, let us in. No, it's like we're going to build up the strength and then we're going to make you pay when we select strategic moments. Now, I'll just say one other thing in terms of ways of knowing in this question of faith, because faith we know, as we talked about many times, faith is not based on a kind of approach to trying to find evidence of, in fact, they talk about that, right? The evidence of things not seen. But prayer is not confined to any one particular way of knowing. In fact, when I think about prayer, John Henry Clark, you say service is the highest form of prayer. I was talking to the great uh, African scholar, Toyin Falola, yesterday. I interviewed him for, for the thing that we do on, called the Black Table. And I really wanted to talk to him. It's been a few months. He was on travel. So finally he said, I'm available as people got together. And man, sitting with that elder, he's he has published well over 100 books, probably more like 130 or 40 at this point. And his last couple I had here, including one on African studies, I really wanted to have a conversation with him about. And he has the just that gravity to sit with. I encourage folk to look look up Toyin Falola. He has a, a website actually kind of as a point of entry into him. And one of the things he said yesterday, he said, you know, hope is not a scientific concept. So you can't look at it as a concept that you can reduce to looking for evidence. And of course, the evidence of things not seen, right? Like faith. And he also said, the question that we must always ask ourselves as human beings is what holds societies together? He says, in the modern world, we look at societies and what we see in, in the West often is societies are held together by guilt and shame. Guilt is the 
experience we have as individuals when we know that there is a kind of way of knowing a code some people might call it ethics or morals there's right behavior and not right behavior in circumstances and you know you didn't do the right thing but nobody else knows you have guilt so you try to compensate you do it or you don't you just get tone deaf to your own guilt or you suppress it he says shame is everybody else finding out <laughs> you have no shame yeah because i had no guilt why because i'm tone deaf to this i mean it's very interesting as he talks about this but when i think of prayer you know none of this breaking the chain that linked the ideas of african people and our beautiful diversity over the millennia this renewed normal none of this displaces the good in our governance structures none of this you know displaces the good in our ways of knowing so we still move in these places where people are trying to answer that question. How do we strengthen the ties that bind us? And he said, you know, I asked him, Baba, how do you do it, man? I mean, in the in the preface of this particular book, and I'll show it to you all because I think this is one of the many books. This is the one I was talking about. It's called Decolonizing African Studies, Knowledge, Production, Agency, and Voice, Toyin Falola. He writes in the introduction, he says, um, what can I say? And this book is uh, 678 pages. He's got another one that's about 700. He said volume two of this coming out. He's publishing books all the time. In fact, two books came out since this one came out. And this one came out earlier this year. He says, what can I say other than to express profound gratitude? I recognize all the scholars listed above for their critical comments and scholarly objections where necessary, but also their strong endorsements of the project. And here's where I asked him about. I said, Bobby, you wrote this. Many communications occurred in the middle of the night when honest people were supposed to be fast asleep. Yeah, it resonated with me. He said, I was always awake. Seven days a week, 18 hours a day, consumed by the passion for engaging in debates and responding to critical reviews and making amendments. And then he goes on to, I said, Baba, seven days a week, 18 hours a day. You here with us, and I'm grateful for the hour you spent you spending with us. I said, uh, you know, I asked him before, I said, before we start recording, I said, Baba, I hope you don't mind me calling you Baba instead of doctor or professor, but we'll follow your lead. He said, he sat there for a minute, Ruth. He said, Baba is fine. I said, see, you got teaching this moment. No question. People think doctor is the highest honorific. I'm going to tell you right now, in an academic setting at HBCU, I always learned from the time I was a freshman at Tennessee State, professor is higher than, than doctor. And Baba and Mama is higher than all of them because that's the, that's the governance relationship. So anyway, you know what he said? He said, I said, don't, how, how do you sustain yourself? The same question people ask you or me or many of us here right now. How do you sustain yourself? He looked in the camera. He said, I work for you. <laughs> he said, when you work for others, that's what sustains you. And he is absolutely correct. Of course, we have to do things for ourselves. But think about in this capitalist society, in this society where value is turned into a commodity, into a currency as proxy for value. Think about the concept of self-care. You got to take care of yourself. I'm like, man, seven days a week, 18 hours a day. But I work for you. What are we here for? General Clark says service is the highest form of prayer. Even self-care, when it is in isolation, can be corrosive. So when I think of prayers, I think of some of the great prayers, the great hymns of the church, the great songs, the great chants, the great collective work. And I think of prayer, and I, I try to try to think about prayer in the context of relationships. Because if service is the highest form of prayer, if working for others is the way to sustain oneself while we're in these physical forms, 
then there's really no time when you are alone. And when you're breaking the chain, it link our ideas to other ideas in the world. Even as we prepare to engage the entire world and its ideas, we have to remember that that too is a relationship and it's all a speech. People of Kemet would say the first speech is the creator thinking and then speaking existence into existence. And as Amun would say, that which exists always existed. All that you are now aware of is this existence. So when I spoke, happening itself happened, but I was always here. You know, this is the now you which came from me are aware. So I look at myself and I say, if I miss my mom and dad, I don't have to miss them. Why? I'm with them. Why? They literally made me the speech. I am their speech. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Professor Hunter, you are your mother and father's speech, and they are their parents' speech, and they are their parents' speech. You go back to what they call Septepi and Kemet, the first occasion. You say, oh, that's that old Hotep stuff. It's all right. I ain't mad at you. You have been in a social structure that made you hate yourself. So just ask yourself that question, Malcolm always asked. Who taught you to hate yourself? And then calm down and remember that you are never alone. So even as the platters might say, when the twilight is gone, and no songbirds are singing. So the sun's going down. When the twilight is gone, you come into my heart. Remember in Jim and Kemet, the word for heart is Eve. Eve translates roughly into English as heart and mind at the same time. So you ain't just looking here in your chest or here in your brain. They're looking at your spirit. Your heart and your mind are one thing. And here in my heart, you will stay while I pray. I wish they would sing the platters, my prayer in church, in mosque, in synagogue, in the Ephi circle, in the Vodun or Cotton Blaze circle. My prayer is to linger with you at the end of the day in a dream that's divine. The prayer is rarely to be alone. My prayer is a rapture in blue mm -mm. with the world far away and your lips close to mine. One of the words for joy in ancient Egyptian, reshwet, when you see the glyph, it is literally a nose with a flared nostril. So when somebody look at you and say, boy, that girl got your nose open, people don't even understand <laughs> how the concept of sensory joy is linked to through the physiology of our body to these broader concepts that transcend our physical being tonight when our hearts are aglow oh tell me the words that i'm longing to know see i don't hear that song as a romance song alone that's a song about relationships my prayer and the answer you give may they still be the same for as long as we live that you'll always be there at the end of my prayer so i hear the platters and i'm like see that's a calming thing. Now, yeah, that's the 50s and 60s. And yeah, the modality has changed. But then when I hear Crazy in Love, Jay-Z and Beyonce, I hear the same sentiment. But what I don't hear is the momentum of memory. So, yes, it's more aggressive. Yes, there's more, you know. And yes, because guess what? The market invaded. 
and the market can absorb our drums, absorb our tones, and then feed it back to a population that is farther and farther away from the institutions that fortified us. Because guess what? Those young people in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee were listening to the platters when they were on those lines picketing when they were knocking on doors in Mississippi and Alabama, registering people to vote, when they were facing down the damn funky ass police in places like Orangeburg, South Carolina, before the Orangeburg massacre, when they were in Maryland, like uh, our sister Judy Richardson, who made transition last year, facing them down in Cambridge, Maryland. Our, our, our young people were listening to echoes of the platters in places like Sophia Town, South Africa, the great Miriam Makeba. Uh, and who Masakela? Our our ancestors were listening to the platters in places like Jamaica and Barbados and Trinidad and Tobago. So you see early Bob Marley dressed up in tuxedos and with his people, the whalers, and then they move into their own embrace, renewing the normal with the cultures they created out of the Caribbean. You know, they're, they're, one of their points of departure is that music from the fifties and sixties, and that music, that music, that not only grounded itself in relationships, but even as it came through the 60s and 70s, even as the, the Western concepts of these individual loves and joys try to intrude upon us, we still ask the question, baby, 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 don't leave me. Where did our love go? Where did our love go? Love, the word love, ancient Egyptian, the backhoe, symbolizing labor, work. To love is to work for others. Your beloved is to mirror, is to work. Is labor is at the center of that. Baba Toyin for Lola said, yes, I work for you. Imagine that in a society that is so captured in getting over on somebody else. Western society is destined for death. The only question is, are we going to let this society destroy us while it destroys itself? Which means not only did y'all die, we died. And you could live. If you would simply get not just the thing that you are fascinated with out of these other cultures, but the lessons underneath them, you can't monetize everything. And so I'm thinking about that even in terms of um, we have to understand the world we live in with a much broader connected scope. That's why what we are doing, which is not the first time people have done it, but we're in this moment now connecting this connection work is so valuable because we get to talk and listen to each other. And it helps us understand this is, for example, Financial Times. Again, I go back to the FT today. Global equities with the comeback. Uh, they have a deal. What happened to Ukraine? Are they finished? No, they ain't even. No, they ain't finished. They ain't finished. But you see the Ukraine kind of recedes people, you know. But uh, Ukraine's pre uh, president, uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky, visiting the port of Chornomorsk near Odessa yesterday to watch grain being loaded into a Turkish ship because Ukraine had made a deal. The world needs the grain. It's been sitting in Ukraine now for months, since February. And so there are more than 80 vessels that have been marooned there since the Russian invasion. And the UN and the Turks then brokered a deal with Moscow to lift the blockade. Because guess what? People starving and the people who own the grain ain't making no money. Money make the world move. As uh, my sister, Njamele Jackson out of uh, Philly, master teacher up there, I used to laugh, Tammy would say this all the time. Money make the world move. This world right here, yeah, they losing money. 
So while the global equities are staging a combat, guess what? Y'all think that war is just about Putin don't like somebody, but you better stop watching the soap operas and follow the money. Y'all not making money off this grain. We can price gouge on the gas, but if the grain's sitting on the ships, you know, get rid of the blockade. So they don't forget, but this is what interested me. This beat nose cosplay cone coal miner, soft white nationalist out of West Virginia, Joe Manchin. Everybody celebrating Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin gave up his uh his opposition to this wide-ranging climate change bill. And so what happened? He struck a deal with Charles Schumer. Those of you not in the United States, this is the drama going on in the United States that people think they know because they turn on MSNBC or maybe read a headline somewhere or heard it in the news on the way in and out of the car or glanced at a website. Nah. The headline says much of what we need to know. See the headline? U.S. energy security fears help unlock climate bill. You think Joe Manchin just decided, now he did get a little uh, earmark on drilling rights and stuff like that, but it says the senator who had single-handedly blocked Joe Biden's climate agenda just a few weeks ago has explained his stunning change of heart this week as a move to protect both U.S. oil and gas and clean energy interests. Backing a historic bill that would set aside $369 billion for climate and clean energy programs, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin positioned the legislation as one that was designed to ensure the U.S. become energy self-reliant. Yeah, that's after his owners called and said, our money's in place. Uh, we're good. Did you get this in the bill? You get this in the bill? Okay, let it go now because you have a problem here. The problem you have is we're in a world where when the ball blow up, because of global warming and gets rid of the species, ain't none of us going to be here. And we just had to make sure we got the things in place to make all this money off renewable energy. And you can't keep obstructing now. Now go in there and vote yes, because we got our little ill marks in the thing. We now know where this is going a little bit further. And to rally public sentiment, because they you catch in hell. And we don't care about that. We'll just, if, they, if you lose, we'll just buy the next one. But public sentiment we're right up against the wall. You got these white nationalists out here attacking the government. You got you a soft white nationalist, which is really nearly here to there, but you're holding up this. People are saying, what the hell? I'm suffering the gas prices. Okay, okay, okay. What holds the United States together? It's what holds many contemporary societies together. They're against something else, somebody else. This is, uh, I mentioned this before, Richard Kreitner. His book, Break It Up. Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. Richard Kreitner is a correspondent, contributing writer for The Nation. And uh, interesting guy, very interesting guy. His argument is in this 450-page book is that the central theme in U.S. history is secession. In other words, it isn't union, it's secession. The thing that has held the United States together more than any other single thing has been who it opposed. The 13 colonies didn't agree with each other, but they wanted away from Britain. Once that was achieved, the Articles of Federation were kind of weak. The concessions to the South were because the Northern country colonies turned states were like, we don't need them. And the Southern ones like, we don't need them. It was a joint criminal enterprise and what kept it going was the border, going West. But every time they went West, somebody was like, I want away. California didn't want to come in. Texas damn sure didn't want to come in. But the, the, the thing that Kreitner traces for hundreds of pages is that this is the organizing sentiment of the United States of America. I mean, when I tell you that 
George Washington, who was president of the United States, who he says had a failed presidency, he said, when, when, when people get west of the Allegheny Mountains, they're going to secede. That was his greatest fear. Aaron Burr wanted to create a new empire. Remember Burr? Kill, uh, Burr and Hamilton. Hamilton is killed and Burr is ostracized. Burr wanted to break out. John Quincy Adams brought a Massachusetts town petition for dissolving the United States to the floor of Congress. The abolitionists wanted to break it up. And so, you know, I was talking to this cat, man. It's interesting. He said, look, this is what he says. He says, our most powerful myth in the United States. I love when they say our. I don't argue with them. Our most powerful myth, the, the fusion was completed with the Civil War and Reconstruction, that the many ever melded into one is just that, a myth. Kreitner writes, I refuse to recognize this. Like patients who insist against all evidence that they are not ill, has been a major cause of our political dysfunction and social strife. Secession is the only kind of revolution we Americans have ever known and the only kind we're ever likely to see. The past few years, and this came out in 2020, this book, the past few years have seen the idea of disunion after a prominence unseen since the Civil War. Attain a prominence not unseen since the Civil War. With partisan divisions hardening in every branch of government modern crisis, it's easy to see the appeal. If the massive, hodge, if the massive hodgepodge of a country known as the United States no longer functions as a going concern, maybe it's time to break it up. This is Kreitner's argument. I asked him about this. I said, man, so when you use Lincoln's words during the Civil War, that the United States is the last best hope on earth for the proposition that maybe breaking up the United States is the last best hope on, on earth, what do you mean? Kreitner was like, I think if the United States broke up, the Northeast Many of the coastal Pacific Coast country uh, countries, states in formation could do something about global warming that can't be achieved right now in the United States as a whole. And so the last best hope from humanity for humanity might be the United States breaking up so that clusters of states could come together and control emissions. And those states that didn't want to get out would be weakened in their obstructionist capacity. And eventually, if you start taking away enough resources from them, businesses relocate these other places, these other regions, people go... They might have to come along. But the way it is now, when you got the whole federal apparatus held hostage by a cosplay coal miner, wholly owned subsidiary of corporations called Joe Manchin, who then signs off because if you, as again, Financial Times telling the truth because they following the money, money make the world move, that now you can go ahead and concede. Imagine we're on the brink of extinction. And this now, this federal apparatus, you say it was not working. It's working, fool. This was never supposed to be a country. That white apartheid, uh, white minority federal apparatus, electoral college, bicameral legislature, which was designed to create power, never anticipated the full occupation from sea to sign and sea from Canada to Mexico. But it works even better on that regard, with that regard, because the white minority and we are living with the last generation of people who will live in the United States of America in its current form that is majority white. And yet we still see the outsized influence of these of these fools in the federal legislature. We are living in something that was designed to do what it is doing, and it is doing it even better now than it was in 1787. And so Kreitner is like, break it up. Break it up. Because guess what? It might break up anyway. So as we sit here, we think about key moments in the history of this criminal enterprise where human beings have pushed back against it, whether it be Lincoln attempting to save the union, whether it be Adam Powell 
a representative of a group that was never supposed to be in the conversation using a battering ram and a bullhorn to try to get some resources for his people, internal contradictions notwithstanding, a man who understood capitalism down to its teeth and who preached about it from the pulpit of his church, Abyssinian Baptist Church, in terms of ways of knowing, in ways that are very forceful and powerful, we realize that we face a system that we may have to oppose as a matter of doing what is right to bind societies together to preserve ourselves as a species. So this is no longer just a case of, and as if it ever was, but especially now, this isn't a case of individuals, just individuals. The we's that have to form, which leads us all the way back to where we started, I think, in terms of, you know, you, you're talking to Professor Wolf. It requires us to talk to everybody, to interact with everyone, but to do so not as individuals, but from bases, from governance formation, with way informed by ways of knowing, propelled by movement and memory that gives us and restores for us the momentum of memory, the, the momentum of continuity, institutions that have all that, and to create cultural meaning making that comes out of that deep well, that renewed normal, that speak not only to our heart mind, speak to our spirits, speak to then having us approach each other with in ways that are very much more uh, um, generous and connected. All of those things will emerge as we renew our memory of who we are. They will not emerge in any critical mass from thinking that every generation is creating something brand new. Because guess who don't do that? The people in the institutions that create the hierarchies, that translate value into currency, to keep us oppressed. And then they let 15 ball players, two anti-racist activists, a couple of singers, and two Negro politicians in the room and say, see, keep working hard. And we'd be like, okay, okay. Really? Really? That's literally the miseducation of the Negro. But um, let's talk, we could talk a little bit about some of these things that we, uh, that you brought up earlier in the week when we were talking. I mean, is Adam Clayton Powell is, is, is a couple of anniversaries we want to talk Today is the day he was elected to Congress. Adam Clayton Powell, of course, um, pastor, Abyssinian Baptist Church, and representative from the great state of Harlem. I called it that. The great state of Harlem and the People's Republic of Brooklyn. No yeah. question. We, I don't even talk. Yeah, what is New York City? Right. That's true. <laughs> Another one of those cobbled together car crashes uh, no question. No that question. you can, you know, have a place like Howard Beach in the same place as Cambria Heights. You could have, you know, uh, Bensonhurst in the same place as, as Bed-Stuy in East New York, you know, uh, just crossing imaginary boundaries. You could get killed, you know, or, uh, or, or you can stitch it together with the culture. As Rakim said, I go to Queens for Queens. I get the crew from Brooklyn. Get money in Manhattan and never been took in. Go uptown to the Bronx and boogie down. Get strong on the aisle and recoup and lay around. Time to give her my juice back up. Remember the theme from Juice? I think Rakim the genius, you know what I'm saying? It's the blackness that makes the thing move. No question. It's I mean, crazy. That island where Eric Garner was choked to death at the same birth of, of Wu-Tang. You know, it's like, you know. How about that? Weird. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, pal, yeah, pal, you know, it's funny, yeah, of course, yeah. when you mentioned pal, I, I pulled, I, you know, all, of all the pal books, this is one of my favorites, Keep the Faith, Baby. 
Let's keep the faith, baby. These are sermons. Because, you know, and and this is this is the first book he published where he's publishing it as a preacher. Because, you know, he got marching blacks and others. Keep the faith, baby. Right. And just very quickly. Talking about capitalism. He's got this sermon on black power. I'm gonna come back to. But he got one that he gave called this is in the section that is called your money and your religion. (laughs) See. Man, I'm, I, you know, I'm telling you, I cannot say how fortunate I am in the world. And I know we'll talk about some of the people who came ancestors this week. One, of course, the great Mary Alice Smith, who uh, from Indianola, Mississippi, who I wish I could have met. Did you ever meet Mary Alice? I did not. Oh, I wish I, I mean, met. there's a laundry list of people that I would, I've not met that are now ancestors. Yeah, I guess with all of us. And then we got the ones I would have loved to meet. Mary Alice was... I mean, just her 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 brilliance. But we talk about her in a minute. But um, who, of course, moved to New York. When we talk about maybe Douglas Turner Ward, she's from Indianola, Mississippi. Like so many Mississippians end up in Chicago. But um, Adam Clayton Powell has this sermon, "Your Money and Your Religion," and it just made me think about Jeremiah Wright again. I'm just thinking about you know the genius. I, now I got to ask him if he ever pre- preached from this. He probably did. He didn't preach the whole Bible many times. Um, hey, guy. Some of y'all correct my um, correct my my pronunciation. Haggai one verses six through seven. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye, we ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts: Consider your ways. Just what Adam Clayton Powell said. He said, and, I, and I'm going to resist the urge. I have chosen as the background of this morning's talk the shortest book. I didn't resist the urge. I'm going to read it straight. I have chosen as the background of this morning's talk the shortest book of the Old Testament. The book is scarcely more than one page. The book of Haggai. One page. Some of y'all now. Again, ways of knowing. The thing for us as African people is no knowledge should be foreign to us. Du Bois writes about that. And in fact, Baba uh, Tony Falola was evoking Du Bois the other day when we were talking. You know, nothing should be foreign to us, but there should be an us to which nothing is foreign. In other words, we have to have a place to stand. That's why we got to clear our minds. Again, breaking the chains that link our ideas to other, our ideas to other ideas, not linking uh you know, we have to have a place that then we can connect. But if you don't have a place, then you just become a figment of somebody else's imagination. That's where you get Negroes thinking they made progress by playing a black version of Hamlet or Shakespeare in Shakespeare or being the first black person to be a ballerina. You know, you was dancing before them people even had letters to spell ballerina, right? You, you know, and you know that that tutu you got on, you know, is derivative because some of them people didn't like the way they look, so they want to make a booty. I mean, you you do know that those you don't. No, I'm not saying no dance, but I'm saying when you go into dance, know that you came from a place where dancing was invented and created and that you never stopped dancing. And now you can dance like this, too. And because you always end up turning it out anyway. And then they take that swag and translate it into value. And then after you finish performing, it's very nice. They all cheer and clap and cry and put you on the cover of Vogue magazine, give you a couple of interviews. And then when you got your ass beat in the street by the cop or your cousin did. You on TV crying, talking about we want justice, and then they come out to the rally with the Black Lives Matter sounds. And who are you? Well, uh, I'm here too. Peace and love. Oh, you that lady who got that uh uh my sign in here? Yes, and I'm here for you. 
<laughs> anyway, Adam Clayton Powell said, I've chosen as the background of this morning's talk, the shortest book of the Old Testament. This book is scarcely more than one page, the book of Haggai. The importance of this book is all out of proportion to its size. It is a summary of four addresses delivered by the prophet Haggai between September 1st and December 31st in the year 520 BC. The secession of Darius to the Persian throne in 521 was the occasion of insurrections all over his empire. He goes on. See, this is the thing I love about trained ministers. They be knowing the history, at least up to a point. And then them, and then them preachers that take, pause, those ministers that take the history back beyond this, they are often the most powerful ones. I said, we see Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King in seminary when he writes about the Egyptians. He wrote a whole paper on Isis, Osiris, and, and, and Horus. It's in volume one or volume two. I'd have to go. I think volume two is in storage. Volume one is around here somewhere. He wrote a paper about it in his seminary class. You see, and you know, and again, Jeremiah Wright tell you this, Freddie Haynes too, among many others. People in seminary be knowing, but they also want a congregation. <laughs> so as you say, you got to know how to ease that into the conversation. So when you see Trinity, and you see Jeremiah Wright, you see him surrounding himself with and others surrounding themselves with, you know, Jacob Carruthers, Ivor Carruthers, Asa Hilliard, people in and out, Juwan Kunjufu, all the people in Chicago who are doing the African Center work, Conrad World, and them. They are in that pulpit. They are in, in that pulpit, not in the pulpit. They are in that formation. They are in the education sessions. They are speaking in those spaces. They are doing. And when you see Adam Powell. Remember, Adam Powell, after forming a friendship with Malcolm X, turns over the pulpit to Malcolm. I ain't scared of the Muslims. Black power. He got a whole sermon here on black powers. I said, let me go very quickly about it because this, this ties to what we were talking about earlier. He talks about, he says, Haggai came upon the scene with one purpose, to concentrate the hopes and efforts of his people in organizing their religious community and therefore building a temple to God. So he goes through the history and he says, the exhortation to build the temple from which we draw the background for our thoughts was addressed to the civil governor, Zerubbabel, and to the religious head of the community, Joshua. The people had been disheartened by the bad harvest. So they ain't had no money. They had sown much and brought in little. That's from the scripture, right? Powell continues, a drought had been upon the land, withering away everything that they had plant, planted. I got to really fight. I could hear him in my head. I'm not going to try to sound like him. The brilliant promises of Isaiah had not been fulfilled. They were disillusioned people. <laughs> I can hear him now. Prices were high. Wages low. <laughs> I mean, I wish I could have seen Adam Clayton Powell. You see him on film. You hear the voice. But I wish I could have been in when he's been. He says, it seemed as if the money just dropped through holes in their pockets. Sincerely, they argued that the time had not yet come to build the temple. Their resources were too pitifully inadequate. Their sad plight showed plainly. But God was still angry with them. It was unreasonable for them to emulate David and his enthusiasm to build Jehovah a house. But Haggai met this news, as prophets always must, by putting a moral interpretation on the people's disaster. Wait, he getting ready to go beyond money? To talk about morals? Right behavior and action? He said, consider your ways. You have neglected God's house, but you live in houses covered with costly woodwork. You walked around looking for much, and it came to little. Well, you sound like you, Professor Hunter, a minute ago. Wait a minute. Today, it seems that our wages are put into a bag with holes. He says, extravagance is such a bag. Spending more than your income justifies. Living so near to your income, it is impossible not to go beyond it. A good way to meet this problem is to either earn more or spend less. This Adam Powell, who enjoyed the good life, as we know. 
Number two, he says, is waste. Some people think waste is extravagance. Waste may be a thing. May, 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 waste may be of a thing that is necessary. Food, fuel, money, land, produce, talent. So he's saying what you're wasting your talent. You're wasting your food or fuel or money. Now, I know us coming up, you had to eat everything on your plate. And, but there's also a question of talent. What are you doing with your talent? I'm going to go out here and make money. Okay, that's good. What else? Oh, well, I mean, I make some money. I take care of my family. Okay, is that the best use of your talent? Those of us who are teachers must always remind us. In fact, uh, Baba Falola was saying that yesterday. I said, so Baba, what you working on now? He said, well, I have a foundation where I take money from rich people like you and give it to poor people like you. I love how these elders, man, particularly will say something and you got to stop me. <laughs> but the point is the you he's talking about ain't the money it's our community and relative to some people in our global community we are rich and in terms of wealth the source that is translated into currency everybody rich but somebody didn't eat today so pal is talking about waste what did you do he goes on and says excess he says this is like extravagance and waste but it is extravagance and waste employed on yourself and to the detriment of yourself. It means spending any large proportion of what you have on things which minister chiefly to pride and glory, to say nothing of the evil side of one's life. Then he says, what should I do? Then he quotes Proverbs 23, verse four, labor not to be rich. Here's what Adam Powell says. And this was published, It was he gave the sermon before this, but this was published in 1967. He says, first, it is impossible for most people to become rich. Oh, Financial Times. It's impossible for most people to become rich. Why do you buy insurance? Because you ain't got enough money to pay when you get sick. So what do you do? Every month, you give rich people your money. Insurance set up for people to be rich. You can't, you ain't gonna own an insurance company and you hope you never get sick. Some people live their whole lives never get sick. They get sick near the end of their physical time and they never make the money back they gave to them people for decades. Insurance is a way for rich people to make more money off of fear because we live in a society where the value is the currency and the value is not the people. I work for you. When, what, what, was the, what did we do before we had insurance? Mutual aid. What did we have before we had people get together and say, I got a dollar, you got a dollar, let's put it together. What do we do before? Well, we, I was a doctor in the community and I know y'all couldn't pay me. So bring me a plate of greens or y'all just make sure that all my, you know, suits are pressed and my clothes are clean. And when I get to the office, I'll, you know, I'll make sure that y'all, in other words, there are, and what do we see? These young people picking up on these traditions, calling it mutual aid as if it's new. No, it's renewed. There are ways to pick around the edges while we are trying to reform ourselves. In our, in our little corner of the world and in, in growing corner of the world with Nubian narrative, as it grows and grows, yes, there's an annual subscription. It's very low. And we have dimensions of it that aren't subsidized that way. But as we're growing, it's just, and you keep plowing all the resources back into it, back into it. Why? Because Karen, honey, you say, I work for you. Man, when he said that, man, I was like, Bob, I said, he said, second, the cost of laboring to be rich is exorbitant. <laughs> you ain't lying. That's some kids paying them student loans. In energy, a fierce battle. In time, a long battle. Weary toil. Uncertainly, Powell says, a wealth seeker is liable to sink into low materialism. Third, and only four. Third, the attainment of riches is often disappointing. 
It brings new cares, anxieties, fears. And of what value are they to your heart and your mind? Or in the words of, well, I would say the words of Sean Combs, but in the words of employees of Sean Combs, more money, more problems. <laughs> Powell continues forth, laboring to be rich <laughs> leads to a neglect of the nobler things of life. The culture of one's mind, social intercourse, the service of God. Every time I hear, when the twilight is gone and no songbirds are singing, in that moment, my mind goes to all those places I've been as the sun was going down, the banks of the Nile, the banks of the Mississippi in Louisiana, or my little front porch in Nashville. I think of all them places I've been where the sun was going down. Harlem, Manhattan, Brooklyn, the Battery, Brooklyn Battery, sun going down, Jersey City, you name it. Y'all think about them places you've been where the sun was going down and in that moment there was a peace. How much that costs? Adam Clayton Powell say, <laughs> laboring to be rich. It don't mean you don't try to get your coin, try to get your weight up financially because you want to translate that into the thing. But what is the most valuable thing? The most valuable thing we have is our time. A lot of people are laboring to buy back their time. Vacation from the Latin, vacare, meaning to vacate, meaning to empty oneself of the cares and concerns. I took a two week vacation, I came back renewed. No, you two, two, week, two weeks off of the labor and now you back at the grindstone and the people want you to do that. I mean, in France, hell, you might not be able to get nothing to eat a whole month while they, you know, we. We, we, we got to slow this down. And in places in Europe, Portugal, you know, Spain, Italy, middle of the day, how long is lunch? Lunch is as long as we want it to be. I'm going to let this wine set in and then I'm going to, these people, what do these people do? Yeah, these people are a lot happier. They live a lot longer. And you, we all know people who don't rush nowhere. They be on time for things in it, but what you going to do, baby, just sit still. Or in that split second when you rushing out the house and then you get in the car or you get on the subway or you get on the bus or you walking down the street and you realize I left my fill in the blank. If you had just paused at the door, hold on. What happens when you pause? Everybody else, including those of yourselves that are with you all the time, come back into your mind. When the twilight is gone, you come into my heart. Is it silence when you stop? No, because when you stop, that awareness expands. We're never alone. <sighs> Damn, I almost forgot that check I need. Well, because you took a moment to let you talk to yourself. And it was there. But if you had just went, okay, I'm coming. That's why if, you know, I'm rarely on the phone anyway, but I found, and I'm sure a lot of us are in that space. If you're talking on the phone and working and doing stuff and moving stuff around at the same time, you get out the phone, you don't know where any of that stuff is. Wait, where did I put my, I was on the phone. Damn. I was thinking about this and not that. So I don't be talking on the phone when I'm working. If I'm moving stuff around, books around, I, I can't find it. Now I got to sit here and get real quiet and reconstruct the conversation. Oh, I was, we were talking about, okay, when we were talking about that, I was standing over there. Here it is. But that is painful. I spent a lot of time. So, so 
this is and then of course he takes it to god we've inherited one fact we must put god first in all things i mean god's house god program god's people god's inner self in your life because again he's a minister but let me end with pal on this and then we'll wrap this is what i <laughs> he's got this sermon he gives it's the first sermon in the book it's called black power a form of godly power this is a great sermon pal is fascinating he starts he says it in the last year and a half, a number of statements about power, and most recently, black power, have been made by me. Others have embraced the phrase black power more for their own misguided and selfish ends than in any sincere attempt to help the black masses. You know, Powell going to get the ego. He got the ego. He goes, I said black power first. Okay. All right, all right. Let me go back to a March 28th, 1965, when I spoke in Chicago and presented a black position paper for America's 20 million Negroes. And he talks about this position paper he did, right? Then he says, what is the phrase? He says, thus the phrase black power was born. He says, what is black power? And he starts talking about different. Now, this is where I want to go with it. This is like, did he write this today? Powell says, black power has come to mean whatever any newspaper columnist, editorial writer, civil rights leader, or white racist wants it to mean. One of America's great statesmen, A. Philip Randolph, talks in terms of coalition power. Phrased another way, it is called by my beloved friend, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. I had to laugh given how he's talking about King, but my beloved friend, you know how Negroes, man, especially these politicians, my colleague, <laughs> okay, my beloved friend, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., striped power. Now here comes the shade. Let me read the whole thing and I'll just see, can you pick up the shade? Phrased another way, it is called by my beloved friend, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., striped power. I called Martin the other day and told him that stripes are found on striped pants, which are worn by Baptist preachers and zebras. And nobody can ride a zebra. <laughs> Why you do that, pal? Pal's a wild bull, as they might say in Philly. He's a wild bull. And he says, the National Urban League's Whitney Young, who, of course, we've talked about many times. He says, the National Urban League's Whitney Young conceptualized black power as the green power of the pocketbook. Pal now adds the shade. He said, and indeed he should. Because what organization has derived more green power from the civil rights movement than the National Urban League, the Wall Street of the civil rights movement? It can rightfully be rightfully said that the National Urban League has made a killing on the civil rights stock market with the more than $1 million it receives in grants from the federal government. Oh, is this diversity, educate, uh, diversity equity, and inclusion cats that got bank accounts got swole two summers ago? As every corporation, help, help, help. You're racist. Pay me. You're racist. Pay me. You're racist. Pay me. Okay, this is impolite. I'm just going to say you're a racist, but my agent already got the check, right? Hit the one. Okay, very good. You're a racist. Uh, no. <laughs> Powell goes on and says, that fiery young radical story, Carmichael, sees black power as the fuse for rebellions in American cities. I cannot pretend to speak for what others interpret black power to mean. I can only speak for Adam Clayton Powell Jr. And so in doing, I only remind millions of black people of my 36 years of commitment to the cause of freedom for the black man and black woman, obviously. He says, first of all, black power is not anti-white. Black power incorporates everybody who wishes to work together, vote together and worship together. Is black power white supremacy in reverse? He says, black power makes no moral judgment, but white supremacy does. Black power simply reaffirms the integrity, dignity, and self-respect of black people. White supremacy denies them. And he goes on, he starts putting things, and he's saying, y'all shouldn't be burned down in neighborhoods. I understand it, but you shouldn't be burning it down. You shouldn't be doing this to yourself. And then he says, let me read a few sentences from a book. As I read, consider the significance of these words in the current mood of worsening race tensions in America. This is 66, 67. He says, and here's where the book he's quoting from, he says, a pamphlet on how to prevent a race riot in your hometown was issued in November 1943 by the American Civil Liberties Union through the Committee Against Racial Discrimination. 
The pamphlet was written by Winifred Rauschenbusch. During her investigation, she found 23 cities where racial tensions are so acute that there's liable to be an explosion any day. This Negro minority not only hates the officers of the law, but they hate anything that looks white. They would kill a white cat if one passed through their neighborhood. Behind all this immediate trouble, so far as the threat of overt action is concerned, is an impatient, irresistible drive of the Negroes on the one hand for a fuller realization of the equality which has long been promised to them, but just as long denied. On the other hand, stubborn, deepening, and in some places broadening resistance of the whites to this very aim. Now that's the quote he says. Powell then says, were these words written last week, last month, or even three months ago? Powell says they were not. They were written almost a quarter of a century ago, 21 years ago by my father, Reverend Adam Clayton Powell Sr. in his book, Riots and Ruins, which of course sent me to the stat for my signed copy, I'm very happy to say, uh, to Ms. Obazine Walker with the compliments of the author, Adam Clayton Powell Sr., Riots and Ruins. By the way, Obazine Palmer was the principal of Benjamin Banneker High School here in D.C., and I actually did not get that book in D.C. 20, 25 years ago. I actually found it in New Orleans of all places. So I had to go look up Obazine Walker. I'm like, how did her book get down here in New Orleans? But I will keep it for safekeeping and probably for a day just as this. And what you read in 1943 is Adam Clayton Powell Sr. is talking about the fact that Black people are still trying to hold off white supremacy. And what y'all are afraid of, whatever you're afraid of, is stoking Black people to react violently. What his son then says a generation later in the Black Power sermon that opens Keep the Faith, baby, is those circumstances have not changed. And here we are 50 years, 50 plus years now, 54 years after this book was published, Adam Clayton Powell, facing these similar things, which should tell us what? It should tell us that not only is this system incapable of doing anything different, but as the demographics change in particular, and the United States looks more and more like the rest of the world, we have an obligation to ourselves and to humanity to intervene, to stop. In fact, let me just, let me, let me see. He says, hold up. I want to, let me see if I can find the exact, um, okay, I'll give you what he says black power is. He says black power is first and foremost godly power. He a minister, he's going to say that. God has spoken twice, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Okay, he goes on. Second, black power is black pride. I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, and I wish that, uh, Rem Haynes and Rem Wright with you know could be in here in in a vocal way to help us remix that 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 I've heard that uh that line translated differently. He says it is this pride, this belief in self and in the dignity of the black man's soul that Senegal President Leopold Senghor embraces when he calls nigritude, which is a whole nother conversation. We had, we had to reserve that for another day, nigritude. Third, black power is black initiative. Uh-oh. The rousing of black people from fear and the sad fatigue of idleness to take the initiative by lifting themselves up and changing their lives, changing their lives through the mobilization of the energies of millions of black people and black communities all over America. I would add throughout the world, because remember, Powell is over there arguing in Bandung that the United States is a friend of these non-white people who are coming together. And so Powell got some contradictions, too, although he's friends with Malcolm. It's kind of all kinds of things around. He says, fourth, black power is black productivity. The increase of black jobs for black men and women, the contribution of black people to gross national product, the beautification of black neighborhoods, the expansion of black businesses, 
And he then argues, he says, fifth, black power is black responsibility. The recognition by black people that they must demand and have a proportionate share of the responsibilities of running the communities, the cities, and the states in which they live. This responsibility is more than more black congressmen, black mayors, more city councilmen and state assemblymen. It is individual responsibility, an active involvement by each individual in the political, educational, religious, and economic life of his, of her community. I work for you. Powell was out of Harlem, but he was beloved in Black America. And he talks about how he's on the floor of the Congress pushing this legislation. If you got a Pell Grant, thank Adam Clayton Powell. Don't be giving all that credit to Lyndon Baines Johnson. You understand, Powell said, I'm out of New York, but I represent Black people. He says, let me see if I can find it quickly. No, I'll pause here because what he, what he, what he says elsewhere, and it may be in the earlier sermon I read, but I don't want to belabor the point flipping through the pages Powell makes the point that what we are talking about must now transcend this idea of civil rights and embrace human rights and in that echo in a book published in 1967 two years after Malcolm X was assassinated it strikes a resonant chord we read together where do we go from here chaos of community page by page line by line King is saying that these types of iterations of human rights, of embracing the community of humanity, are direct threats to a state system that depends on keeping people separated. So when the cosplay coal miner from West Virginia signs legislation, the social structure starts cheering, we from the governor's perspective could say, yeah, now let's bang on him and keep going. Why? Because he only did it to protect what is perceived to be U.S. national interests against the Chinese. And, and in some stories, as John Clark said, ain't no good guys. Why? Because China is in Congo and got these children out here digging out these minerals so they can put them in the very damn iMacs and, and, and uh, uh, MacBook Pros and iPhones that they sending you to buy with all this money that you don't have, as Adam Clayton Powell said, at the damn Apple store and the damn phone store. The whole point is that this capitalist system can only be dismantled when people withdraw our power from it and repurpose that power, which is really our time, in institutions that will change this world. And these artificial state boundaries are not going to be the way to do it. So, pause here. But we know that because people are here from all over the world all over the world i'm in the chat right now with a thousand people um oh 1.1 look at this and keep going up the way people come from all over all hey, everybody over. matter of fact nubians uh state where you're from really quickly would you please yeah, let us know where you are joining us from because you know we're here in the, in the morning uh heading into 10 o'clock a.m eastern um, <laughs> john said how the hell you had a financial phone right can you, can you yeah, I mean, everything's going to be financed now. You know, Octavia Butler talked about that. You know, we're going to, you know, there are mattresses now that you can buy, you know, the things you can buy, you pay monthly on for the rest of your life. So, you know. And you grew up, you grew up in a household of business people. Can you imagine, how did your pops deal with credit? I'm just curious. Oh, he was masterful. Uh, <laughs> he he uh, planned on his bankruptcy after he... Uh, <laughs> You waited till I had that coffee. Oh, I'm sorry. What? Wait a minute, what? You know, bought all our furniture and everything, bought the house cash, and then uh, went bankrupt so he didn't have to pay none of the bills. Study the laws. I couldn't do it, but, you know, yeah. I just, I was going through, you know, I'm cleaning out everything, and this book that he kept, 
of all of the money and the accounts and everything. I've talked about it before I have to get it printed, uh, you know, but he, it took him three years to get from 68,000 to like $300,000 back in 1986. Oh and I'm sitting there like, and he was meticulous in recording it in which accounts. And there was a, a custodial account for me, for my mother. And like he just, I mean, it was just, yeah. Uh, he mastered the system and told me that, you know, bankruptcy is a tool. You know, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I have a a a, a safe full of cash because I know I'm gonna need the cash. So he stockpiled his cash, charged everything, and then went bankrupt. I was like, this this is I, I wouldn't do it. I I couldn't do it, but I, I love watching it and knowing knowing how people move and what they're capable of, and you know, growing up in a household with somebody that's constantly thinking, and for him that was black power because he was definitely you know, a black nationalist to his core right. at the same time was a Reagan Republican. Complicated. Well, that, that doesn't, that's not contradictory necessarily. No. In fact, I just talked to Corey Robin who did the book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. And he says the overlap between black nationalism and conservatism, he says, I'm not caught... I'm writing about Clarence Thomas who sits in this vector. There's, there, there's a space where those two things converge. That is very, that's not inconsistent at all. So, stay out my pockets, bruh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm voting for whoever's gonna stay out my pockets, and then I'm gonna use your same system against you. I mean, some people will call that genius. Now, in Clarence's case, it converges with self-hatred to turn it into something just completely anti-black. But in your pop's case, isn't yeah. that isn't that so we talking about social structure and governance structure? The life of your family and your father is a demonstrated example <laughs> of how to use a social structure when you're not depending on that for your identity. That's a yeah. struggle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I wish that I had to, to, you know, to really to have this mind that I have now to sit with him. I wish he was still here. Of course. So many questions, you know, the, the books from, you know, Napoleon Hill to the ISIS papers to, to Asata, you know, yes. these were books that were in my home, you know, at the same time, you know, go to college, get a good, you know, government job. Like there was, you know, this, this path of, cause you want your children to be safe. But I think our goal should be for our children to be free. You know, there it is. There it is. There you know, it for the family, but you know, and had things available. But those conversations, you know, should have been had because it would have. You know, and I'm here because of him. So I, you know, my mother, of course. Of course, of course. But there's so much, so many more layers and levels to this. That if we, you know, focus, yes, we want our children to be safe. But you can't be safe in a system that you don't break, that is literally designed to break you. You cannot. Your kids will never be safe That's right. in a system like this. So, That's right. In fact, he writes about, I mean, he writes, he preached that. I didn't read that part of the sermon, the Black Power sermon, but he talks about Black people assaulting other Black people. He said, some guy, a Black dude, came to my office in Congress, and when I wasn't there, he started attacking the secretaries, and then we had to call the Capitol Police. He said, the reason I wasn't in there to meet with him was I, at that very moment, was on the floor pushing through legislation to help our community. I mean, but that kind of, you're right. We can't, I mean, wow, that's really something. And then, of course, as I'm rereading it, I'm thinking about January the 6th. But of course, you saw the brother got sentenced to five, what, 63 months? Yeah, the the, the sec, well, I think it's tied for the longest sentence. Yeah, but I you saw the sister who sentenced him. 
the federal judge who sentenced him was a black woman. She can't she been giving out death to these people. <laughs> she on the bench. I think Obama pointed her. Yeah, black judge. And I'm thinking, boy, you think y'all don't know between her and his sister down there in Atlanta, you know, they're gonna gather Donald Trump. You ain't gotta worry about it. <laughs> you know, it's not even about Trump. Nope. You know, and, and and the more we focus on that, it's like you know, look over here, look over here. No, it's the system. It's that produced that and the 74 million people that feel so beleaguered in this that, that somebody's going to take something from them that they never had on this mythology of whiteness that they're willing to forego everything to solidify their place uh in this 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 bastion of inequity so i don't know i don't know dr carl Williams going to end up but i do know if we double down on what we're doing here it won't even matter double and that's down on blackness yeah. I'm loving it. Yeah. I'm just glancing at the chat too. Everybody's sharing their stories and they checking in from where they are. Look, my goodness. Perk uh Perkins 62 said your dad was a genius. Facts. <laughs> I mean, but people are sharing their experiences in it. Yeah, I mean, and fortunately, you've been talking about this and, and sharing with this across all your platforms for so long and very consistently. In fact, that's one of the first things that I remember hearing about you a long time ago. Was that you know this question of getting ourselves free and understanding how this world works the politics the money you know and not losing ourselves in that system we have to have a place to stand outside of it even as we're surrounded by it, it goes back to what you raised at the very beginning and framed for us today and so now we're at a place where we can you know here we here we have another tool and we just got to keep growing it i'm loving this people are talking <laughs> i'm sorry no, 125 episodes of whatever this is. You know, it's like um, even even calling it an episode. All right, Fort Lauderdale, Rhode Island, South Carolina. I'm just looking at DMV, uh, Cali. It's like Trinidad and Tobago coming in. I see they from all over. And then of course that's not even counting all the other people who will watch. And y'all should put it too in in that long chat on uh, we, we put on YouTube. Put where y'all are, and as y'all are coming in. We uh, I didn't even get to well, Ellenwood, Georgia. What in the world? Winston Salem. Okay, and we did we ever do the Durham? Durham we had a conversation about Haiti, huh? No, we didn't. Okay, we need to do that. Maybe we do it in narrative. We got a few more you should know. And I've been, I didn't even talk about this week. Um, you know, we don't do it now because obviously we're near we're at the end. So um, I'll say that for next week. I want to talk about this question of education and you know, quality education and what it means to sit at this intersection of culture in this hierarchy that we live in. I learned a lot over the summer. We got another couple of weeks with our freedom school students, but this was the last week for summer school at Howard. And it's just a lot of insight from young people who are in conversation with themselves, with us, not just each other physically, but with that momentum of memory that's why that culture that, that that movement and memory category is so important and people are, that's what these stories folks are sharing now and i hope more people will, will share is so important that movement and memory category in our african states framework asked the question how did or do people remember previous experiences so as you lead us through your father and the way that he navigated and operated in this financial system we live in i just glanced at a few people chatting in here making telling their stories i mean he did it made it to you 
Now you didn't sit and have a physical conversation, but it's in everything you do. It's clearly, I mean, you know, you're not moving through the world. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a movement in memory. In other words, how did or do you remember the experience? We see it in the way you move. You see it in the way you work for us. Yeah. It's your, it's your father <laughs> and mother. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you didn't have to get the playbook. You saw the playbook. Somehow it, you learned it. You know what I'm saying? But as you're talking about that rite of passage, uh, mm. you know, and we've been talking about this, you know, the team, like, when we develop this space for the young people, there has to be a rite of passage that includes not just, you know, maybe some meta nature, you know, definitely, you know, some beginnings of, you know, the framing of how we communicate, but also this kind of what does it mean to be an adult, you know, and even to be mm. an elder, you know, we, we're, we're, we're processing that because we want the elders to oversee this space of young people, but who's an elder? What what does it require to be an elder? And I think too many of us have not gone through the paces where there's an actual, you know, blueprint for what that looks like that we can sustain over generations that then, you know, defines what it is to be this, to be an adult, to be an elder, to be, you know, uh, an educator. You know, there there should be some basis for that. It shouldn't just be because you call yourself that. That's right. And there is, I mean, we know it. We know it in our lived experiences. Again, that governance category, who are we to each other? Most of us have seen it modeled. We may not have lived it. Many of us have lived it. Some of us have not been able to live it, but we've seen it. And I think, that, again, that momentum of memory, that continuity, Holly Greenman talks about. You know, when Holly says that a colonized people can't be colonized, people cannot succumb to an imperial power if they have continuity means that we know better than this. People say, oh, the black community, the family is broken and we're the missing black men, the black fathers. Shut up. These are challenges that we face in a social structure, but with continuity, with the momentum of memory, we know that that is an abnormal position. And rites of passage, you know, that's what's allowed us to survive. Well, but it has to be systematized so that there's like what you said, the, you know, uh, boycott is step number eight, you know? Yeah. Ma'at, there's seven principles. Like we need or, or, or really Ma'at really doesn't have a number. That's the, the trick. Mm -hmm. Ma'at doesn't have, and you know, Mario, maybe get Mario to talk about that next week. Somebody can ask him when we come into the meta nature conversation. Ma'at doesn't have like people say, well, there are 42 principles of Ma'at. Mm -mm, take that number away. Ma'at is period or ellipse. In other words, when you look at Ma'at. It's a concept. Ma'at is almost like saying gravity. It's almost like saying, in other words, there is no place that exists outside of Ma'at. It's just, a, in other words, you know, if you slap me, I'm going to feel the sting and your hand is going to feel the sting and whatever emotions come out of it, every action has a react. Think of Ma'at as every action has a reaction. So if you wish something on somebody, Ma'at is simply the observation that that took something from you too. In other words, there's a whole not, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, when we look at white people, mm, calm down. Because my eye would say, be very careful. Because any system built on depriving somebody else also deprived that person. I mean, so, we, we, so when we say the principle, I think what ends up happening is we start trying to enumerate where we see my eye. So my eye talks about don't kill people. My eye says feed people. My eye, in other words, these are prescriptions that have been written and we see them on the walls. We see them in the papyrus. And then we've been oriented to try to find numbers. It's something very similar in terms of the first this, the first that, or the oldest this, the oldest that. This kind of linear concept. But 
Yeah, so seven yeah, so is enough. We're, we're doing the white people thing instead of the African thing. Yeah, a, and, and we had number, we use numbers, but it, yeah, it's a, it's a circle, it's a cycle, and of course, yeah, it, we are, and it's difficult because there is a need for precision, there is a need for enumeration, there is a need for labeling, as long as those numbers, again, I think about you making sure that in many ways seven manifests, which is a very important number. There are ways to use them, and they all have to be the same, but, but when the point you raised about rites of passage in addition to everything is very important. Um, because we have never, we have never displaced rites of passage. Rites of passage is deep in human experiences, deep in the varied experiences of Africans. How do we know? Because even when the behavior is not good for the community, it involves rites of passage. People are very protective of people who are part of their community. And that community is just, you know, the various formations of the Crips or the Bloods. If you with us, you with us, and it's going to be a rites of passage, but then we're not with them. It's the we're not with them that creates problems, and even the violences that we absorb and channel into the us's. But the thing that didn't change in terms of this value is the rite of passage. To be with us, you got to do X, Y, Z. We all saw that. We saw the protocol. You can just walk up into something. If you can just walk up into something, then what is it? You know what I'm saying? You can't just walk up into something. And so, I mean, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I, uh, again, I love just listening to black people talk. So I'm watching some brothers have a conversation about, and it's been 60 seconds on this, and it's Will Smith apology that apparently popped up, and I watched it. And it's very different when black people have a conversation about Will Smith and, and, and Chris Rock than it is when black people are talking to other people or other people talking to black people. And I know black people, we don't have no one opinion and we won't get into this today. As I said, 60 seconds and I'm almost at the end of it. But it was fascinating to hear because what also came out to what you're raising in the rites of passage is what, you know, is what happens when there's a certain protocol to borrow from Angie Porter's concept. She's developing this Africana legal studies concept of protocol, looking back at classical Africa, medieval Africa, African people in the diaspora, and this question of what is right behavior and protocol. And these brothers got into this whole conversation about protocol. They ain't about Jalen. He shouldn't have told that joke, but it was Hollywood. I understand. Yeah, but a man know if a, and, then, and then, of course, then it comes to a conversation about technique. Should he slap his face? The open hand slap is the ultimate disrespect. It's like spitting on something. There's a protocol. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you just hit him on the back of the neck and sit back down. In other words, that may have been worse. You just sunned the man in terms of how they would say it in Philly. I just sunned you. In other words, you think, what are y'all talking about? This is governance structure talk. Y'all don't know nothing about it, and nor should you know about it. And every human society has it. Is there a protocol in the mafia? There used to be. <laughs> What's the protocol? In other words, if you with us, you can't touch nobody. You made man. There may have been touched. Sure, there are exceptions. But the fact that there are exceptions means there's a rule. Your people ain't got no rules. No, you don't know our protocols. And so what happened that night is we talked about at the Academy Awards. You know, there are many things in operation that night. And what we ain't going to do is read Variety magazine or watch People magazine or listen to y'all talk about what happened because I couldn't care less what you think. I don't know that I care what I think about it, but I know what I'm not going to do is listen to you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
Mm. I'm not going to listen to you because you don't have anything valuable to add to the conversation until I thought about it myself or whoever else I want to talk about because I'm breaking the chain and link my ideas to your ideas and we're going to talk to each other without interpreters. No, thank you. No, thank you. Because your parents' generation, my parents' generation, what does it mean to be disrespected? Your black people didn't fight white people, but there were certain ways that they would not be disrespected by white people. That's how you stay off the bus for a year. <laughs> you know what? That's it. You've been spitting on black women. F y'all. I don't give it. I will walk before you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I think we both, um, and because I'm we're both with young people, a lot of the things that we were raised with, like if my mother called me and I said, What? Ooh, oh, I knew that that was gonna be a problem. So I just might need to stay upstairs for a while, you know. But <laughs> There's like, you know, I had to uh, check a, uh, one of my students. I was like, you will never, ever in your entire life call me Karen, ever. Ooh. Ever, never, ever. And I saw it in an email, which, you know, I was CC'd on. I was like, mm, I don't care if everybody in the email is calling me that. You are, you're, you're one of my students. You will never that? refer to me what the way everyone else is. And that? they were very apologetic, but I was like, nobody told you. You know, I have to I have to check my producer. I'm like, that's Doctor So and So, that's Doctor. You don't call them by their first name. And yeah, you may be 30, and you may feel very familiar with people, but these folk that are coming on the show, you're gonna refer to them. And so there's like a certain home training that they're getting. I'm <laughs> not their parent, but we have that home training. I don't think it's as prevalent as it once was, Doctor no, Carr. I'm seeing a lack of that, and that's this generation, our generation's fault. Um, primarily for not establishing those rules and making uh, it uncomfortable for people to break them. There should be a, a due north, I think. Yeah. Um, well, as Adam Powell says in that, in that piece on money, there's also these external actors. Because I think if they hadn't been these external actors, we it may have been a diminishing, but it wouldn't have been as severe. But you're absolutely right. It's on us, wherever it came from. Now we got to right. rebuild it. That's which, right. is why, yeah, which is why Rice of Passage, part of that is going to be you know some home training built in because maybe we forgot. And we need to remember that because it was That's there right. for a reason. It's there That's for a right. reason. That's right. Can you give us a moment or two for Mary Alice, who made transition. Most of us know her as Sparkle's mama. Some of us know her from Broadway, where she won a Tony. Some of us know her from her Emmy Award-winning acting on television. I was reading up on her when she was on Broadway by way of Chicago, by way of Mississippi. She would wash the clothes of her cast members when she was uh, on these uh, off off Broadway, these these uh, Chitlin Circuit plays to make money, two hundred dollars uh, a week um, washing. Oh, it's two hundred dollars a month washing people's clothes. And I thought about the humility of you know you're working your craft, and it's not you're not too too much. You know you're not too um, you know full of yourself to not wash people's clothes and and to feed yourself while you're doing the thing that you love. Well, I just think about the grace, you know, that she as the oracle in, in that next matrix after the original one um, passed. There's just there's a lot of dignity and grace in the way Mary Alice carried herself in that voice. Um, so it was sad to see yet another. But I guess at the same time, she's on the other side fighting now. That's right. And left a body of work. I shall. I mean, yeah, I mean, of course, the first oracle in the matrix. Gloria Foster, herself another giant of the stage, like Mary Alice, and like that generation, really. 
all stage actors. These were theater actors. They were not born digital. They were not born movie. You know, they were not born in, in, in film. They were born on the theater. And of course, Mary Alice was a member of the Negro Ensemble Company. I'll tell you who tells his story well is uh, Douglas Turner Ward, who was the founder and who told her that she was a school teacher in Chicago. And he uh, was in Chicago and someone brought her to him. And Douglas Turner Ward said, you know, you get to New York. If you get to New York, I will look out for you. And he had a program. The Negro Ensemble Company had a kind of uh, an apprentice program. A lot of people came out of that program. And he um, he turned her over to the great Lloyd Richards. Of course, Lloyd Richards, as we know, was the director collaborated with August Wilson. And that's how she ended up. And in fact, I saw something Viola Davis put on social media where she said, you know, shout out to the original in Fences, Viola Davis, who made transition as a picture of the two of them together. That genealogy, man, that's the beautiful thing. You see that genealogy. And, you know, who are we to each other? I was thinking about that the other day with Zendaya and Kiki Palmer. And, you know, here goes this kind of churn up. But well, why isn't Kiki Palmer more recognizing this this role in Nope is her breakout role? And she said, I've been in, on, I, I was a lead in 11 years old. And they said, well, what was Zendaya? Why she get all this? And they trying to general. And then they started posting pictures of each other together, mm. you know, making kissy face. Y'all not going to do that. So when I saw Viola Davis with that picture, you know. And I said, wow, there she is with Mary Alice. And she said, shout out, because y'all looking at me and Denzel and Fences and, and on the stage and then in the movie. But you got to remember, Mary Alice won a Tony for that role. She created that role on the stage first time. Lloyd Richards, of course, who was the director with August Wilson. All that's made possible because there was a Negro ensemble theater that allowed her to move from teaching to go into the craft she wanted to get in. And so you got to remember Douglas Turner Ward and other people who came out of that program, people who aren't even actors like Susan Taylor. And I mean, who did that work and was well in New York. And I saw it to say that Mary Alice, as you say, with that, with that grace, with that dignity, Ah, let me not use those words. They're almost like social structure words, but they come so easily to us because they're there. I remember one interview where she said, you know, when you asked me, how did I come to this role of the Oracle? She said, I just folded into that role, all the women I knew. Mm. And so when you look at her, there's a reason why you feel like a mother, a sister, an elder, someone, she said, I'm not basing this on making up a character. I got quiet. And I'm in conversation with all these women in my genealogy. And so here I am. And like you said, a different world for a generation. You know, that's she was she she anchored that house. Some of us are just old enough to remember the dorm mothers at HBCUs. You couldn't go in. We come up Jefferson Street from Tennessee State going trying to trying to sniff at these little girls who lived in Jubilee Hall and Miss <laughs> Fisk. And there was a letter we call Madam Jubilee. That elder was always in the drawing room. Y'all remember that scene in school days? <laughs> Where you can you come and you come in that dorm, you sitting on that little love seat over there, and you're gonna leave in an hour. And meanwhile, the lady is over there, she lives in the dorm. I mean, so you see Letty in a different world, that's a very real character. But but I'll end with this in terms of the great Mary Alice, Mary Alice Smith, but Mary Alice as we know her stage name. That brilliance coming out of our ways of knowing bringing forth that momentum of memory so that she could make culture, cultural meaning making, like you say, sparkle, 
different world, wherever you saw her, the matrix, these are cultural meaning-making moments on an art. And that momentum of memory that we see in movement and memory allows us to see her across the stage. Maybe my favorite, although it depends on, you know, what mood I'm in, what performance that she, she really undertook. Of course, we know that collection of filmmakers that came out of the West Coast, the great Ethiopian by way of Chicago, then on the West Coast, Heidi Garima, one of his closest com comrades, Charles Burnett. I would encourage folk, if you've never seen it, to see a movie, a film by Charles Burnett. Many people may know him for The Glass Shield. Uh, Killer of Sheep was like probably the first film that he made. That was, it wasn't the first movie he made, but it was one that got public attention. But there is a brilliant film by Charles Burdett, part of what they call in the social structure, the L.A. Rebellion. Holly Grima, Charles Burdett, Larry Clark, a little bit later on, Julie Dash. You know. There's a film Mary, Mary Alice co-stars in with Danny Glover called uh, To Sleep With Anger. To Sleep With Anger. It is a brilliant, brilliant meditation on culture, on governance, on movement and memory, on ways of knowing. You got to pay attention to every moment of every scene. And Mary Alice with that same centered, under control, and then fully expansive expressiveness with a look, with a narrowed brow. Oh, no. You know, Felicia Rashad got a little bit of that. You ain't got to move all around. It's just, you know, just that narrowing of the eyes and them brows. Oh, no. <laughs> you can just feel that. Her interaction with Danny Glover. With all the characters in the film, because Danny Glover didn't play her husband. It, well, I won't, I'll say less about that. Go, go watch To Sleep With Anger. And I think even in celebration as she begins to journey toward a powerful ancestorhood and eternity. Mary Alice into Sleep with Anger is representative of the best of our craft in that in, in, in that particular craft of, of, of the drama. So we shall for her. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Um and uh everybody wants to know what book <laughs> what book are we reading in office hours? Oh, you know what? At all, and that was because um, you know I tapped in for Uraeus on Monday, and then I completely derailed. Um, no, no, it's not a derail. I really think, and to, in fact, why don't we do this while looking? We're looking at all the people who made suggestions. Why don't we spend just two weeks on uh, Walter Rodney? Because I really and Rodney Rodney was really, and then we'll 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 go from there and see what where it leads us and what people are suggesting. Um, Walter yeah, Rodney. Forty-five suggestions of books. Um, yes, yes, and we, we, we and we need to talk about some of that. In fact, people talking about movie night. Yes. Oh, to, oh, well, that would actually be. Well, would be copyright violation. Or would, would it be if we did to sleep with anger? Say less. Say nothing. Say nothing. No. Possibly. Copyright. Yes. We do nothing. We do no copyright. No copyright. Nothing. Right. Right. If anything, I tell you what. Then. Um. All right. Maybe Monday we um yeah I like to sleep with anger a lot. Okay. Anyway, we'll say nothing. Right. But we'll, uh but uh but 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 everybody out. get and if you can get it, get Listen, the uh, we could purchase it. Oh yeah, no, no, no. I'm talking about the book. I mean, if we do, let me see. I should have Rodney somewhere close because 
Oh, I pulled, oh man, I pulled out those for Lola books because I knew I was going to talk to him. And I think I put up my copy of, um, I would say, Walter Rodney, um, Walt, hmm, where did that, this is going to bother me because I know I had it around here somewhere close. Uh, Walter Rodney, The Groundings with My Brothers. I think it's a good kind of moment for us to reflect on what Rodney is trying to get us to see. Ah, that's just crazy. And if you can get the edition that is the most recent edition, which is Verso Press, V E R S O. Y'all okay. see me looking around in here. Ah, no. Yep. Uh -oh. There uh -oh. it is. You know what it was? I moved it because I was moving these other books. And here we go. Yeah, get this edition if you can. The Grannies for My Brothers, Walter Rodney. This edition. Hold it up again and just pause. Oh, yeah. All right. oh, oh. The Groundings with My Brothers, Walter Rodney. This edition is good because um, his family members are involved. Asha Rodney, daughter, Jesse Benjamin. This one came out in 2019. As you see, there's a lot of other stuff in it. Carol Boyce Davies writes an introduction. But the Groundings itself is very short. You see? The six chapters, it's really about 60 pages. I mean, we do two, just two weeks on this. But then the commentaries in this edition include his wife, Patricia, his comrades, uh, Robin, uh, Robin, Robin Small, Bongo Jerry, David Austin, Vereen Shepard, and Randall Robinson, actually, who does the last piece, Our Responsibilities in a, you know, in a Governance Formation. My man, Randall Robinson, my brother, Our Responsibilities to Each Other. Well, why, it, this, why this book, Dr. Carr? Well, this one is... Um, you know what? Let me just give you the just the first paragraph from the editor's introduction. The graphics with my brothers is important in so many ways. It is perhaps the most direct representation of Walter Rodney's natural voice during the early period of his work. Walter Rodney, historian, political power, uh, organizer, pan-Africanist, black power uh, person. He worked with the Guyanese Working People's Alliance. He was actually assassinated in 1980 and conspiracy that involved all of the Western powers as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but he goes on, the editor says, these grounding talks, which became chapters, so they didn't start as writing, they're talks, represent Rodney's voice as a very young professor, post-PhD, engaging with Jamaica in 1968, where he was just 26 years old. Now, 50 years since its original publication by Bogo Louverture Press. Bogo Louverture was a press out of London. In fact, I got a copy of the groundings from that edition. Um, it says it remains vital and relevant, addressing key issues of black consciousness, black power, the role of the academic and intellectual. And we have exploded that here. This is why it would be very interesting as we reading this and thinking about this. The Jamaica situation, African history, colonialism and its legacies, liberation and transnational engagement of racialized police brutality. Mm. So there's a lot there. He says, it is compulsory text to be used in community work, undergraduate courses, high schools, unions, and popular education. It's the Walter Rodney Foundation, by the way, is in Atlanta. Yeah, they have a website. You can look at you know, a lot of Walter Rodney stuff is out there, kind of open source. If you go to the Walter Rodney Foundation website, you can see a lot of his, his, his talks, his discussions. Walter Rodney just brilliant and the reason so finally i think that this would be a good one for us to kind of just do as a transition into the next thing we, we we discuss together is and maybe we won't start it monday maybe we'll do something else monday I don't know. but on 
the following Monday, we'll we'll do our two weeks with it. Okay. Um, it is very plain spoken, and it allows us to enter the conversation with ourselves fully. And then from there, we can take it any number of ways. But what Rodney is, and he was just so young. So it also gives us a sense of the possible. Thinking now just about the young people we have. So many young people. And by the way, Olivia did it. Her mom, they did it again Monday night, didn't they? Some of y'all know we talked about. With her beautiful bow, uh, asking you what is the meaning of life. I was like, um, all right. You say what the meaning. And then she gave us the meaning of life. Yes. Straight up. <laughs> it's like, I love it. I love it here. Um, yes. And it's, you know, I was, let me come back in because I'm about to share my screen. Yeah, um, come on. I was having a conversation, you know, because as you, breaking free from this social structure that puts us in these boxes, right? So if you are, if you're in business or you're, you're marketing, you know, uh, marketing for black women is very, you know, you can get corporate sponsorship, you know, there's no, no space because everybody wants your demographics. They want to know your audience. They want to know all of these things, but there's no place for people that reach an Olivia and who also has uh, Dr. Van P, but also has couples who may share an account and also has, you know, PhDs and truck drivers. And, you know, we folk from all over the diaspora, you know, as we were looking in the chat from Iowa, you know, so that, so as I'm putting things together for things that I'm planning, I realize that there's no, you know, I'm not going to be forced into these spaces to do something just for black women because that's not how we roll. We roll collectively, all of us together. We are under this tree learning from a master educator. And the the social structure is gonna have to bend and or I'm yes. gonna break it. Yes. Uh, but I'm I'm committed to not capitulating to what they want. You're not gonna get what you want. You're gonna get what we need. Or else, exactly. or you know, else. if you want, if you want to be in community with us, that's what it's going to require of you. Um, and I think we have spoiled the the many of us in business have ruined our ability to have true power because we bend and capitulate to the whims of of a system that was designed to oppress us, and so thereby we continue to oppression, even yeah. if a couple of us win, like the lotto bringing it all back so no I'm, uh, you know so and, and together we make the, i mean I, i'm glad you said it because it reminds me as well that while we're here right now one of the nubians and her whole family in fact uh, aya fubara anelli they are in nigeria now they arrived a couple of days ago and all of the resources that everybody here contributed for the um emma johnson dirigo wari they're having the the grand opening again although they've been open for months all those books arrived in Lagos. They've been transported to Port Harcourt, and now they're in Opobo town. So all those children are coming together today. In fact, I guess in Lagos, it's probably now early, late afternoon, early evening. So some of y'all, I don't know, I might be in here right now. I don't know how she does a million things at once, but her whole family, all the children, you know what I'm saying? So just know, as you say, we... Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what community, community's not just, oh, black women, or oh, just black men, or oh, just, no. you know, even the way in which we move in fraternities and sororities, to me, is, all right, I'm going to let me. No, no, it's cool. Because yeah, those are because because those are that's our model. We don't have to change. You can't change the world by attacking it from the world. We change ourselves and we build together, and then we influence those people. I mean, now you say Kwanzaa, people don't laugh like they used to laugh when we was younger and doing Kwanzaa. Why? You know, 
us, the us organization didn't try to get everybody to be a member of us. It just kept working. Now, now Walmart selling Kwanzaa stuff. Okay, well, we see you. <laughs> all right, all right. Listen, I I love and appreciate you so Same much. Same here. Uh, love you. I love you. Well. None of us would be where we are without each other. So exactly. I'm acknowledge that. Um, exactly. but that's what this. You know, in many ways, being here with you, 125 episodes. Hmm. I think anyone that's watch watching this, you get to see how love yes. operates how community works, how, you know, we, we, you know, sometimes when you go off on certain things, I may not a hundred percent understand or even agree and that's okay, but we sit and we, we learn from each other and we, you know, and at the, at the same time, there's grace, you know, oh, no question because at the foundation of this is love. So we don't get to see this often. We so busy with this left, right, or, you know, different people opposing yeah. each other on all these platforms, everybody's fighting and stuff. This is genuine and it feels so good. So I just want to say thank you. Same here. Love and you. I want to leave us with this um, prayer that I've been teeing up. Uh, oh. I found it. Um, so we're going to leave with the with the prayer. And, oh, uh, stop playing. Stop playing. We're gonna leave with it because y'all yep, you hear correctly, son. Yes, oh, your rendition is excellent, but I need folk to under with the words and everything. Come on, uh, uh Nubians, love you. We'll see you in the movie. Love you, love you, Dr. Senyata, Monday with Dr. Carr, office yes. hours. And uh, everyone have a great rest of your weekend. So I'm gonna hit play. Love you, love you, love you. Love you. Twilight is gone. Oh. And no songbirds are singing ah. When the twilight is gone ah. You come into my heart ah. And here in my heart you will stay While I pray My prayer is to linger with you at the end of the day in a dream that's divine. in blue with the world far away and your lips close to mine to Still be the same.
Lord, as we live.